Welcome once again to Cinemaholics. I'm John Agroni. I'm the box office columnist for Adam Tickets, head writer of Cinemaholics.com, and I occasionally write books. He is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend, and he also reviews films for Cinemaholics.com. It's, of course, Will Ashton. Howdy ho. And last, but definitely not least, it's a new year, and it's a new Sam Noland. He's, of course, <laughs> one of our writers for Cinemaholics.com and a co-host of Extra Milestone. Sam Noland, welcome to our Top 10 episode for the first time. Yes, it's very exciting. I love this format that, that you've uh, carefully constructed, John, and I'm thrilled to be a part of it. No detail was left unfinished because when it comes <laughs> to our favorite films of the year, we, we love going all out on the show. And let's let's get into it because we're diving right in. No no announcements or anything like that. Let's just talk about our favorite films of the year. Let's explain how this is going to work. So last year, we started this new thing where we included the top films from Cinemaholics contributors, friends of the show, and all of that from all across like the last three years of doing this show. And I thought it was a huge success. It was a blast seeing what other people picked. And then we factored in everybody's choices into one definitive Cinemaholics top movies of the year. So at the end of this episode, we are going to be revealing what the top 25 films of 2019 are, according to the Cinemaholics. But of course, we'll be going through our own personal favorites, starting with our number 10s. And as we go along, we're going to hear some voicemails from some of the contributors of Cinemaholics who wanted to send us, in their own words, their number one picks of the year, a lot of movies we're going to cover, but before we get started with all that good stuff, let's talk about our general reflections on 2019 as a year in film. I want to hear from you first, Sam. Sam, what do you think of 2019? What stuck out to you cinematically? Uh, cinematically, there was there was a lot to love in 2019. Um, it had kind of a rocky start, but just as it continued to go on, I found myself just getting more and more excited to go to the movies uh, as often as I possibly could. I would see, you know, upwards of like, you know, four or five movies in, in one day at times. Um, it was it's by far the most number of movies I've seen in any particular year. Uh, and it was it was great to know that just no matter what was going on in my life, uh, which was which was quite a bit this year, um, there was I, I always knew that I could go to a cinema and just get lost in the world of something. How good it ended up being varied wildly, and I'm sure we'll get into that. But yeah, that was to that was that's kind of the the overview of it. So it was a very exciting year for myself. Uh, exciting definitely sums it up, I think. Uh, I'll get into my reflections too in a minute. But yeah, something you said there about it being kind of a rocky start at the beginning of the year. One thing we'll probably <laughs> notice as we go through these films is that there, there aren't a lot from the first half of 2019. Yeah. This is the first year that I got to go to Sundance Film Festival in addition to the San Francisco Film Festival. And as usual, like a lot of my favorite films were ones I got to see in the festival environment. Definitely a suitable environment too for when you're watching films, so that makes a lot of sense. And yeah. yeah, aside from those films that I saw even at Sundance, not a lot of those films made it onto my top 10 of the year. But maybe that's a, a hint that it was kind of a balanced year. But I want to hear from you, Will. What, what did you think? Did you think this was balanced? What, what were your general thoughts on 2019? Um, I think it was definitely a year with a lot of good and really good films. Um, I don't remember particularly any films. Well, with only maybe exception of a handful that I felt were like truly great. I think it was just a year that was filled with a lot of really solid, really good films. Um, I don't particularly remember the beginning of the first half of the year being <laughs> that bad. 
I mean, there was quite a few titles I remember thinking from the first half of 2019 that were good. But I guess in retrospective, compared to the second half, it's it's notably a little bit lacking. But yeah, we, yeah. we started 2019 with uh, Glass and The Upside. Those were like the first two kind of big ones. <laughs> Escape Room was like one of the first films that came out this year. I remember and liking. replicas replicas uh one of the first films i saw in 2019 that i genuinely thoroughly liked was the kid who would be king which Mm -hmm. didn't even make my honorable mentions this year but we'll we'll talk about some that did come out in like march so we're starting to get into but one thing i want to point out man what a bleak summer we had in terms of blockbusters blockbusters sucked this year what were some of large most of them were kind of terrible uh Let's see, Men in Black International. Yeah. That was yeah. supposed to be a big thing, and it wasn't. Uh, Godzilla, King of the Monsters was kind of lackluster, and I liked it more than both of you did, and even I don't think it's particularly good. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of Spider-Man Far From Home, but I know that one is that one has a lot of love. Um, I, same thing Same thing with Star Wars, Rise of Skywalker. I mean, uh, I think no, you're kind of skipping over the uh, like <laughs> Disney stuff with um, oh, yeah, so, yeah. Like Lion King, yep. Aladdin... Dark Phoenix, since yeah. that's Fox. Oh, I forgot that movie existed. I was really bummed out. I didn't like Detective Pikachu as much. And, you know, there's a film that other people actually liked quite a bit, enough that it's yeah, actually it. on a few lists. But, mm-hmm. yeah, that one didn't quite wow me. And then, uh, oh, man, uh, what was the uh, the film that came out toward the end? Uh, oh, yeah, it, this is more of a September, but It Chapter 2 was one I thought yeah. kind of just came and went like it wasn't bad bad but it definitely wasn't like I don't know it wasn't like a big event film like a lot of people were expecting or Maleficent Mistress of Evil that was supposed to be a huge thing <laughs> yeah so not just the out. summer but definitely the whole year for blockbusters has been kind of weak but when it man when it comes to indie films and a lot of streaming films we had a pretty strong year so let's let's actually look at how many films each of us saw uh I saw 162 2019 films 161 of them i saw in 2019 and then one of them i saw today uh in 2020 when we're recording this uh what about you sam uh i'm not too far behind i saw 143 2019 films uh three of which i saw in the year 2020 but uh that's and i still have quite a bit that i still need to get to um but yeah not not too shabby if i do say so myself yeah, yeah, it's it's hard to see more than 100 films in a given year because you're literally at that point watching on average about like three movies a week, something like that, yeah. uh, in order to get up to around like the 150 area. Uh, Will, I think we were, we were talking earlier. I don't think you know exactly how many films yeah. you saw. What's your best guess? My best guess is it's probably somewhere in between you two, like between 130 and 150. I don't exactly know what it is, but I mean, again, kind of similar to last year, it's it's less than I usually take in, probably just because I've been busy and I am an adult now, but uh, that's how it goes. <laughs> and I've also been doing a lot of rewatching, yeah. as well as trying to watch like older films that I hadn't seen before, courtesy of things like the Extra Milestone podcast. Mm, so yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that kind of uh, kept me from seeing some of the newer titles that I might have otherwise watched, for better or for worse, but... Yeah, I think my best guess would be like 135 or maybe like 140. I don't exactly okay. know. I, I think it's worth I think it's worth repeating, you know, because a lot of people listening might be think that that's kind of on the high side. 
But people who review films like full time, it's their full time job. A lot of them see more like five movies a week. And yeah, I know people who watch like over 300 new films a year. So almost mm-hmm. a new film every single day. And in the yeah. age of Netflix and Prime Video, it's getting it easier and easier to achieve that higher number or to find those films in the first place without having to go to the theater, which would be more time consuming. But for us, yeah, I, I would say for me, I, I avoid certain films like i I choose not to watch films that we're not going to cover on cinemaholics and i'm not going to write a review for it that i have a feeling is not going to be very good and as i gotten older i've definitely become more at peace with knowing that yeah you can't be a completionist you can't watch everything and it's nice to sort of self-curate and make your own decisions on what you want to watch based on what you know about the film who made it who's in it uh, so that you can be more equipped to have a complete year on your own terms. So that's yeah, kind of where I mean, we're coming from. I mean, for me, generally speaking, uh, and this is something I usually do, but I think more so as I get older, I just try to watch whether I considered like the best or the good films of the year or like the worst. The ones I always try to avoid are like the mediocre ones because they just come and go and they're very disposable when they have like little impact. I try to go for the extremes because <laughs> <laughs> until I feel you like get that text from me where i'm like all right we're reviewing dark phoenix on yeah. cinemaholics there you go well i would actually say dark phoenix is like in my bottom three for the year oh, it's wow. my bottom two for the year yeah it's it's, it's that's very thing. bad i mean that's a, i ultimately think i was thinking about this earlier is that like when i really think about it most of the time like my least favorite movies in a given year are just the truly mediocre ones because they just leave little impact and they're just like a huge waste in that sense yeah do you guys so want to be bad be quick- cats do you guys want to quickly just say what was your what was your least favorite film of 2019? Just uh, of, if people are curious, it was the Lion Haunting King of Sharon Tate. Oh, yeah, I did not watch that. <laughs> <laughs> Nor should you, John. Uh, what about you, Will? Um, it was probably The Lion King, but it's also there's also um, let's see, Dark Phoenix, like I said, uh, Laquisha, and a Medea Family Funeral to compete Oof. with that title. Yeah, those are those are some rough films. Uh, I I would say Six Underground for sure, and uh, Breakthrough and Serenity. Oh, yes. Yeah, those were some... Serenity. <laughs> now this isn't this oh, isn't one of my movie. lowest, but I thought about like Cats, Hidden Life, yeah. films like that. But yeah, I gotta I gotta be a little bit more generous, I suppose. But a Hidden Life is not that bad. <laughs> it is yeah. to me. I highly doubt it's one of the worst movies of the year. Not even close. Well, on, on that note, actually, what are some 2019 films before we start with our number 10 picks? What are some 2019 films you still want to watch? You haven't seen them yet. Uh, there's there's not that many for me, but like, for example, I still really want to see Honeyland, uh, this documentary that's been on my list. I have it rented. I'm going to catch it really soon. But yeah, I just haven't had a chance to see that one. Birds of Passage, Manos, Shadow, the, the uh, Our Time Machine, Wandering Earth. Those are some of the ones I, I can't wait to see them, honestly. Hmm. But what about uh, what about you, Sam? Uh, there, there's a list of like 30 of them, so it, it would take a while to name all of them. But uh, there are a few that were released recently that I just haven't quite gotten around to yet. Like Richard Jewell is one I missed. Uh, I still am curious to see Cats, and everyone I've talked to says like, yeah, you need to witness that for yourself. So Yikes. Uh, I'm morbidly excited about that one. Um and uh, they were mostly from the beginning of the year when I wasn't staying as up to date. Like I still didn't manage to see fighting with my family. And I feel very terrible about that. Uh, same thing with the kid who would be king and high flying bird and climax. 
just a whole lot of stuff uh, that we'll probably be mentioning throughout the episode. Um, but those are kind of those are kind of the biggest ones. Very nice. And then what about you, Will? Yeah. Um, so I got The Mountain, which I actually started watching today, but I haven't finished. Um, Queen Slim. Oh, The Mountain. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Queen Swim, The Report, A Hidden Life. Pain, Glory, Atlantics, Claws, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Shadow, Birds of Passage, Peter Lou, uh, An Elephant Standing Still, I Lost My Body, Death of Dick Long, Apollo 11, Amazing Grace, Fast Color, uh, Varda Bagnus, uh, Nonfiction, oh, yeah. Hole in the Ground, Mustang, Wild Pear Tree, Little Woods, Mike Wallace is Here, and Dark Waters. Yeah, huh. a bunch of those. I, I'm curious, like, I could see at least one of those hitting your top 10, honestly. So I could see three of those at least hitting yeah. your top 10. Yeah, as you said, well, then, did you like, call Ooh. it, did you call it Claws? Did I believe it's Klaus. Oh, is it Klaus? Yes. He hasn't seen the film, Sam, so he doesn't know. Ah, uh, fair enough. I got your back, Will. <laughs> All right, let's talk about our top 10 films of 2019. Starting with you, Sam, what is your number 10 pick? My number 10 pick uh, is, is I believe, one of the overall outliers of every single contributor that sent in a list for this very episode. That's right. I was we the had, only um, person to put it anywhere. I think there's about 20, I forget what it was, it was like 29 people submitted top 10 lists. And Will and I, we don't have any outliers on our top 10s. But Sam, you had three. Uh, <laughs> the person who had the most outliers, and we'll talk about this later, We'll, we'll mention him a little bit later, but we had one person who had four outliers. So out of all 29 lists, or I think it's around 29. Yeah, he had four. But yeah, Sam, you just were, you were reaching for just true contrarianism. It's great. It's, it's, and it was not out of any sort of intention. I just, I've been, I've been keeping my running list throughout the entire year. Uh, and John asked me the other day, he's like, Sam, give me your top 10. I'm like, all right, Jesus. And so I just looked at, my top 10 and it just so happened that three of them were unique to my list so i'm glad that i get to talk about them starting with my number 10 which is a movie that got a very small release back in the beginning of april if memory serves um and and it's one that i actually got to review on the cinemaholics website and that's still up uh it's a french movie directed by actress sophie lorraine called slut in a good way uh if you'll forgive the kind of unseemly title um, it's, it's a high school dramatic, uh, comedy or a drum com as I believe it's called, um, which follows three young friends, uh, in high school who start working at like a toy store over the holiday season, just as a part-time job, um, and, and start exploring, uh, romantic interests in their own individual ways and interacting with their coworkers and stuff. Um, and, uh, it's, it's just absolutely delightful to watch it's filmed in black and white and it's it it's absolutely beautiful um in in like just a really normal sort of way like it's not anything like the 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 vistas and locales and everything are not especially remarkable but they're just shot so amazingly that uh i can't take my eyes away from it it was great to see in a theater uh and it's just really uh it's this really enlightening story about how growing up is difficult and like coming of age, so to speak. Um, and, uh, there's all, there's all sorts of other stuff with it, but that's, that's kind of what it is in a nutshell. It's just this really, uh, really charming movie. Um, and a lot of high school movies kind of depress me just cause, uh, I didn't have a particularly great time in high school. So seeing it happen on film, 
uh, is not always my favorite thing to do, but this one got me and that says a lot. So I was glad to, I was glad to find a spot for this and I hope that, uh, it can gain a little bit of an audience cause I, I see, uh, some praise for it. Everyone who's seen it that I can tell, uh, is a fan of it. So yeah, that is, that's my number 10. Um, so hopefully, hopefully that will tell you what you need to know. Yeah. It's worth pointing out. Yeah, it's it's critically acclaimed. I think it's it has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I think it's the only film on all three of our lists that is a high school movie. So great to see that. There is one other high school movie that did make it on a lot of lists. We'll probably mention that one a little later. Uh, but it did not land on any of our lists, despite being a film that I definitely really liked. And I suspect might be on your honorable mentions. Maybe we'll see later. But uh next up will your number 10 film is actually one of sam's uh it's on sam's list but it's higher up so what we're gonna do is we're gonna wait to talk about that film we'll reveal it a little bit later but for now will we'll have to skip over you so sorry but uh (laughs) i do want to hear what you have to say what you have to say about uh my number 10 films i think you have seen that and it is the farewell the farewell which i think a, a lot of you know has been definitely a critically acclaimed film. This is one of the summer films that kind of came. It it started in the festival circuit. I think it premiered at Sundance. I didn't get to see it then, but I did get to see it a little bit later. And it is a film that's based on, as director Lulu Wong would say, based on a true lie. One thing I want to point out about this film that is is really great is that it is directed by a woman. It's, It's one of three films on my top 10 that was directed by a woman. And uh, great, great to see that as this Oscar season and Academy season in general is moving forward, I'm seeing a lot of love coming for Farewell. For people listening who do not know what it is about, it stars Aquafina as this young woman who is uh, from China, but she lives in the States now. And she finds out that her beloved grandmother, who she calls her Nai Nai, unfortunately is about to pass away and has received some news that she has a terminal illness. However, she doesn't actually know about it. Her family is keeping it a secret from her. Because of the cultural customs of China, uh, where she currently lives, the family believes that it's better for them to carry the burden for Nai Nai so that she doesn't have to know that she is going to pass. And the film balances the struggle between Aquafina's character, Billy, and the rest of her family, who they they more readily understand why this is important, why this is a custom in their country. But Aquafina, who has spent more time in the United States as a young adult, she has such a, a different perspective on how we treat people who are about to die and, and how we reveal to them hard truths. And this film is a balancing act between culture and identity. And despite it being such a downbeat film, as you can imagine, in its subject matter, it's also beautiful and hilarious at the same time this is a very funny witty film and a lot of that comes from the fact that lulu wong this is sort of her story it started as a this american life podcast episode that she eventually turned into a film it almost didn't become a film because a lot of people a lot of studios weren't willing to take a chance on it this is an a24 film i believe and you definitely get that sense of like a24 putting a lot of attention into these performances into a film that could go the distance, I hope, and get some nominations for people involved. I loved The Farewell. Glad it made my number 10. It was between this and one other film we might talk about a little bit later, and I was, I'm was i a little bit bummed that one couldn't make it, but 
I just hope more people check out The Farewell soon. It, it did make a little bit of money, and I, I do know that it, it found a bit of an audience, but I hope if it, it reaches some streaming services in the near future, even more people check it out because it's 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 a little wholesome. Like I think it's something that families can watch and engage with, maybe not younger children or anything like that because it's not that kind of film. But definitely teenagers. I could see a lot of teenagers watching The Farewell and having conversations with their own families that they've never had before. And to me, that's a mark of a an important and culturally relevant film. So that's The Farewell for me. Uh, Sam, have you seen The Farewell? I did see The Farewell, yeah. It okay. came out um, right around the same time as The Lion King, which was unfortunate. Um, <laughs> what a double feature. Got, that it kind of got overshadowed by that. Matter of fact, there were like a lot of really great movies that just so happened to be released the same week as like a big uh, Disney remake or like an MCU installment or something. That's becoming uh, more and more common as Disney owns more and more films and IP. Yeah, but like even even so, this year like they had they had the three big live action ones, and then they had three MCU movies, of which five shared the release weekend approximately uh, with with a movie that made many lists uh, on this show that I'm sure we'll be talking about. Um, but yeah, I really dug the hell out of the farewell. It was it it uh, didn't quite make my list, uh, but it's certainly an honorable mention. Um, one thing I really like about that movie is how. One of the opening scenes is that Billy, uh, Aquafina's character, gets a call from a grandma and her grandma asks, uh, are you wearing a hat? It's cold out. And she says, yes, it cuts to her and she's not wearing a hat. So it's all about just those like those little uh, how, how dishonesty kind of factors into our life and how it can be sort of a necessity at times, but also how it's very hard to engage in. Um, and uh, the what we learn as the movie goes on is that in order to sort of provide a front for this big family gathering so they can all be with Nainai uh, before she uh, before she goes away, um, they've arranged on the fly a wedding with one of uh, Billy's cousins, uh, if memory serves. And I like just the awkwardness of that throughout, how like they can't really comment on it because it would give away the secret, but we know it's there and it's constantly there. So that adds this whole other layer. Uh, I really loved it. So yeah, I was, uh, unfortunately didn't make my list, but yeah, certainly, certainly one to recommend. I wanted to add real quick too, to that scene you mentioned where obviously Aquafina is lying about not having a hat. In that same scene, Nina is lying as well about where she is. Uh, she says that she's yes. fine. And then of course we, we, do, we don't see this, but she's actually in a hospital and her, her relative is about to receive the news that she is in fact dying. So there's dishonesty coming at both angles there. Uh, but what about you, yeah. Will? I know you and I have talked about The Farewell already on Cinemaholics, but yeah, what, I know it's one of your honorable mentions, but how, how did you factor it in when you were thinking of your favorite films of the year? Um, it was one that, like you said, yeah, it was really close to getting my top 10. It, it was one of like three or four titles in particular that I was struggling to figure out if I could fit them in. Ultimately, you can only have 10 movies in your top 10. So I think this one is the one, well, not the only one, but one of the ones where because it's so gentle and so uh, mild-mannered in its approach, I think it can be easy to kind of take advantage of, or the take it, um, what's the word, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Uh uh, take it for granted. Take for granted. Take for granted. Yeah. Sorry. Take for granted uh, what it does and what it does so well. And it's one I want to revisit as well because it's such a sweet and wholesome movie. And like you said, very personal and sincere. So um, I could see this one easily in the next couple of years, like taking over one that's in my spot or one in my spots right now. But for now, it, it 
it almost got there, but close, but no cigar. All but right. a very good film, all the same. Very great film. It made quite a few other lists as well. So let's go through them. It was on 13 lists. So as you can imagine, it's uh, probably going to probably gonna do pretty well in the overall Cinemaholics top 25. But it was May Abdulbaki's number six film. Kimber Myers had it at number five. Robert Yanis Jr. had it at number six. Julia Tatey had it at number five. Candace Fedrick had it at number seven. And if you want to see Candace's whole list, she wanted to make sure that everyone knows to go check it out. It's on Harper's Bazaar. So you can see all of her best films and some write-ups for those films as well. So definitely check that out. And then Corey Woodruff had The Farewell at number nine. So did Emily Kubinkinek, who is hopefully going to be on the show pretty soon. Uh, one of our yes. writers. She had it at number nine as well. And oh gosh, who else is there? Matthew Serafini, he had it at number two. <laughs> Matt Donato had it at number three. Uh, Ryan Oliver had it at number six. And Chris Evangelista had it at number eight. And the person who had the highest on their list was Preeti Chibber. She had it as her number one film of 2019. And nice. happy to see that. Yeah, this had one of the highest amount. It was on one of the, the most amount of play. Uh, lists <laughs> uh and uh, you'll probably get a sense of where it's going to land if you're if you're listening closely but that's a farewell and with that let's uh let's actually do something a little fun here yes. we have a a voicemail from one of our contributors of the show and that's actually cj mellon he is host of that kind of nerd podcast he hasn't been on the show in a while but now we get to hear what he has to say about his number one film of 2019 Here's CJ. Hello, this is CJ Mellon checking in with the Cinemaholics with my favorite movie of the year. And my pick kind of came out of left field. And the more I thought about it, just the more that I liked my out of the box pick fighting with my family. Uh, I want to start off by saying I am not a wrestling fan and I haven't been since the, the late 90s. But the first trailer, for some reason, was just calling out to me that uh, I wanted to go see this movie. I was ready for this movie to be a, a silly wrestling comedy, but it turned into a heartwarming story about family and the potential that all of us have inside if we're just willing to, to put in the work for it. The relationship between Paige and Zach is just so genuine and fleshed out that you feel like that you're part of the family. It's heartbreaking when you watch them struggle, but you really feel the triumph when you watch them grow together. I, I was pleasant surprised with fighting with my family that it, it didn't rely on the tropes of like a typically young woman who's looking to make her dreams come true. They usually just kind of tack on like a half-baked love interest whose sole purpose is just to like ignite the spark within her. But that's not what this movie does. Uh, even the relationship that Paige has with the, the mean girls isn't what it seems to be. Paige has to grow as a person. She has to actively work on her relationships to, to make her dreams a reality. Uh, bottom line, this movie left me energized. It introduced me to, to Florence Pugh, who has quickly become one of my favorite actresses. And at the end of the day, fighting with my family is more than a silly wrestling comedy. It has tremendous heart and is my favorite movie of the year. Thank you so much for having me on. And I look forward to hearing the other picks. All right. That was CJ Mellon, the host of That Kind of Nerd podcast. So great to hear from him. Let's get into our number nine picks of 2019. Starting with you, Sam, what is your number nine film? 
Uh, my number nine is an outlier for the three of us, although I know that it made a few other lists. Um, and it's it's one that, not unlike uh, Fighting With My Family, which we just heard about, sort of came out of nowhere. Like, I didn't really hear anything about this until it came out. Um, but I realized very quickly that this is something I need to see. And it turned out to pay off immensely because I loved it more than uh, quite a few other movies that came out this year, obviously, because it made my list. Um, and it is Trey Edward Schultz's Waves starring uh, Kelvin Harrison Jr. and Sterling K. Brown, among many other very talented uh, performers. Um, and uh, this this is a movie that is really, like, intense um, in, in a really just genuine way. Like, this like this is not necessarily an easy movie to watch because um, it touches on a lot of... a lot of uh, troubling subject matter. But really, what it's about is really bittersweet look at just what it means to be a family and to try to keep it together uh, when it seems like maybe it's just meant to fall apart. Um, And uh, without getting too much into the plot, it's something happens in the middle that seems like it should kind of be the ending, but then it keeps going on for like another hour. And for whatever reason, uh, I was totally with it the whole way, and it's tremendously effective and tremendously performed. Uh, and I know, John, you got to interview the the lead actor, Kelvin Harrison Jr., who's had yeah. a fantastic year about Waves, and I really dug that interview. So um, I'm glad to hear that. Glad to hear that I'm not the only one who really dug the hell out of Waves. It it tells you how good of a year this was, at least from my perspective, that Waves didn't even make my honorable mentions, despite me really liking that film quite a bit. And it did come close. It's like right on the edge of outside my honorable mentions. And I'm glad it, it did find a little bit of an audience. I think a good amount of people went to go see it. And I think it's still playing in some theaters and it'll it'll probably continue to collect uh, new fans uh, from around. But uh, Will, what about you? Did you have a chance to see Waves? I can't remember if you and I talked about it. Yeah, well, it's funny you mentioned this because um, before we recorded, I told Sam that I had uh, just yes. seen uh, one of his films on his list, and this is it. I caught it today at the last showing in the Pittsburgh area, and I'm glad mm-hmm. I did because I, I really did enjoy it. It will be on my honorable mentions. Um, didn't quite like it as much as his previous film, It Comes at Night, which I forget. if That was in my top 10 for 2017. I know it's definitely in my honorable mentions. Um, yeah, that but, was a film we famously disagreed on. Right. <laughs> but um, yeah, I was going to say, so I mean, I don't want to get too much into the weeds of what I feel about it, but I do want to say like from a directorial standpoint, a cinematography standpoint, it, it's really, really impressive. And I'm very excited to see what's the guy's name? Trey. Trey Edward uh, Schultz. Trey, Trey Edward Schultz. Yes. Yeah. He is an immensely talented filmmaker, especially yeah. for his age. I think he's yeah. only like 29 or something. He's my age. Only 29. And he made Krisha, I think, when he was like 24 or something like that. Right. Maybe even younger. That was like his grandma was like the lead character or something? His aunt, I think. His aunt. Okay. That's one of his I haven't seen. But yeah, I I am very much looking forward to seeing where he goes next. And I can definitely see why this is your top 10. So Waves is a great film to go check out. And it made quite a few other lists as well. I think it was on four lists total. And Aaron Dicer also had it as his number nine film. Good, uh, good. And then Skylar Schuler had it as his number six film. And the person who had the highest was Brandon Katz, who I talked about Waves with on a bonus episode of the show. Brandon had Waves as his number five film 
of 2019. So that's Waves. Glad some people found a space for it on their list. Next, let's get into a film that I thought was going to be Will's number one film of 2019. <laughs> if, if I was guessing the list, I would have thought this is the one. And then I think, Will, when you first sent me your picks, uh, I think the first thing I said was like, wait, it's, it's kind of low. Oh, well. But uh, Will, what's your number nine? Sure. Um, my number nine pick is Gaspar Noe's new film, Climax, which uh, I know from John's response leading up to him eventually seeing it this past week is a bit of a hard sell. Just a few um, days ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing about Gaspar Noe's films, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name right. I don't know if it's Snow or Noe, but... Um, Couldn't tell you. Yeah. And notoriously, I'm very bad at pronouncing names. So Gaspar Noe or Noe, if you're listening, I apologize. But uh, yeah, I, I think this film... It, to s- describe it, I don't think would really do it justice because it's ultimately <laughs> uh, a sangria party gone wrong is the the, the rough uh, synopsis of it. But I mean, as a cinematic experience, certainly at the beginning of the year for me, like in the first couple months, uh, it really just took me for a wild ride that I really appreciate. I think for some people, it might be a little too cruel uh, just based on how it turns about. And then um, some people might see it's a little more stylistic than narrative like one of those like style of your substance kind of films and i can kind of see where both christians come about but for me i mean especially when i think back on a lot of films from this year just the way that incorporates music the fluidity of the film performance art in the film every aspect of it really just stood out to me in a way that at the time when i saw it that's i think going to be the theme for me is that where i am in my life when i see these films kind of plays a factor but um I think at that time when it was kind of at a void where I was just wasn't really getting what I wanted out of film. And I, I think this just really recharged me in a way that I needed to. And for that, I'm very appreciative of it. And that's my that's why it's my number one pick or number nine pick. Excuse me. <laughs> number <laughs> we'll nine. Dropping yeah. some knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Climax, uh, a film I just recently saw. And I, I kind of watched it knowing that it's not quite my jam, but I do appreciate a lot of the technical merits of the film and the imagery and a lot of the stylistic flourishes, as you mentioned, I think this is a haunting film. There are some mm-hmm. images in climax that I, I can't get out of my head. And that, yeah. that is a sign that I watched something that is special in its own way and that people should seek out if they're interested in watching something that is going to be challenging for sure. Very provocative, but something that is in the horror genre, but is Uh, above your expectations for what that can mean as a film and not just be your straightforward kind of slasher or whatever have you, the kind of supernatural kind of thing that you might expect out of a horror film. This is its own sort of freaky, psychedelic, wild ride through hell. And I'm glad I went on it. I don't think I'll be going back on that ride anytime soon. I don't think I'm tall enough for this ride. And I just barely made it through the first time. I will say, without giving away what my number eight pick is, I actually think this, my number nine pick and my number eight pick are actually a really fun double feature if you ever feel inclined to watch these two back to back. Wow. But, uh, Can't even just because of Just because of what they say about their individual countries of origin. That's that's as far as I'll go without spoiling anything. Huh. Interesting point. Hmm. Okay. And then, Sam, did you have Climax uh, in your honorable mentions or is it a film you've seen? Uh, I never saw it. I that was. Oh, yeah. Um, you said earlier it was one of the ones you wanted. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. That was that was beginning of the year when I wasn't seeing as much, and I still never managed to to catch up with it. It doesn't sound like my thing either, but I'm also immensely curious to see it, especially from hearing what both of y'all just had to say. So uh, I I will get around to it eventually, and I'm excited to see what the hell 
is it? Because I've seen some of the screenshots and I'm like, what in the world? I need to see this thing. I would say at the very least, if you feel inclined, it's on YouTube. Watch like the first like eight minutes of the film because it's really I would say that alone is worth it. I would just watch, watch the film, Sam. Don't even. I would, I would. Well, of course, I mean, I would do the same. Yeah. Yeah. I'm more of a completionist. So, yeah, sure. it's it's all or nothing. I say. Sure. Fair yeah. Enough. And Sam, I, I definitely think that this I, I think it's on Shutter. I think that's how I watched it. I watched it Is on some. It was it was on a streaming service and okay, yeah. not Prime. Oh, maybe it was Prime. Oh, it's an A twenty four film. That. I'd have to so fact check it. So, but yeah. I, oh, you're right. It was Prime Video because I looked at the X ray. So yes, Prime Video is where you can uh, find yes. Climax. And yeah, Sam, anything you've seen promotionally for this, including a trailer, none of it will prepare you. Like, it, just trust me on that one. But well, yeah. I haven't seen the trailer, so that works out all right. <laughs> there you go. It's a fun trailer. I would say that. So that's Climax. Uh, it looks like it was only on one other person's list. It was Matt Donato's number one film of 2019. Yeah. Great. Matt has a great list and uh, happy to see mm-hmm. that he included Climax because it is a film I do respect. All right. It's my turn for, for me to skip a pick. My number nine <laughs> film is one that we're going to be talking about later in this episode uh, because it is much, much higher on somebody else's list. And we'll reveal more on that later but that is our; those are our number nine picks. Let's hear from another Cinemaholics contributor. This is Robert Yanez Jr., host of the Crooked Table podcast. And he sent us an audio message about his favorite film of the year. Let's hear it now. Hey, Cinemaholics. This is Robert Yanis Jr. at the Crooked Table Podcast, here to talk about my favorite movie of 2019, Jojo Rabbit. Now, I know this one has gotten kind of a divisive response from people on film Twitter. I've heard it uh, compared to Green Book on occasion, and I don't really, I mean, I, I don't really see exactly what, what that connection is. Uh, Green Book was a movie that not did not work for me at all. And Jojo Rabbit, I feel like, really towed that line between comedy and tragedy beautifully uh, with stunning performances from Roman Griffin Davis, Scarlett Johansson, Thomas and McKenzie. And it just felt like a really true human story talking about what brings us together as opposed to what sets us apart, which is a message that I think we really need in this current political climate. So while there are movies like Avengers Endgame that I that, you know, had the spectacle and, and the grandness that we get from the best of blockbuster cinema and smaller movies like Marriage Story that speak to the, you know, the honest truth behind uh, human relationships. Jojo Rabbit, I think, was an experience that you just feel in the end kind of uplifted and inspired by. And that's really what I, I think I was looking for this year. And Jojo Rabbit gave it to me. So props to Taika Waititi for handling this very delicate material uh, in, in a, a beautiful way with a, a lovely message that I, I really think deserves to get more eyeballs uh, in the years ahead. All right. That was Robert Yanis Jr. of Crooked Table. So great to hear from him. And I'm glad he had Jojo Rabbit as, as his number one. I felt kind of yes. bad. It's in my honorable mentions. Came really close. It's a film I really, really enjoyed. A film that I really think works so well at what it's trying to accomplish and a lot of what Robert just laid out. And uh, Sam, did you saw Jojo Rabbit as well? I saw Jojo Rabbit twice. And Robert, you're absolutely right. It is one of the best movies of the year. I felt terrible that I couldn't find root for it on my list. But yeah, the first time I saw it, I was kind of okay with it. Uh, and the second time I wept multiple ah. times throughout the movie. It was, it's utterly fantastic. And I'll, I hope I can catch it at least one more time before it leaves theater, uh, before it leaves theaters, I should say. Um, and at my, at my work, I get to like, it, it just so works out that I get to like hear certain parts of certain movies over and over again. So it was delightful and devastating all at the same time to hear parts of this movie repeatedly. So, 
love, love, love Jojo Rabbit. So sad I couldn't make my list. And I, I think we can just reveal right now. I think, yeah, Will Ashton, it's your number one film of 2019 and 2020. <laughs> oh, I'd love to see whatever version of the film that you guys saw. <laughs> but the, uh, the version that it is, which is fantastic. Uh, it's fine. I, I thought it was all right. I, I have my fine. issues with I thought I had issues, but I mean, I, I don't think the Green Book comparison is off base. Oh, wow. Well, couldn't couldn't disagree with you more, but that is the beauty of Cinemaholics. <laughs> All right, let's get into our number eight picks. Uh, we have another fun yeah. outlier from you, Sam. What's your number eight? Mm. My number eight is a movie I was shocked was an outlier. I thought this movie would, would at least make someone else's list. It is Harmony Kareen's The Beach Bum. Uh, which was the first movie I saw this year that reminded me, oh yeah, movies can be really, really good. Like it, it came out uh, mid to late March. I can't remember the exact release date, although I happen to know that it was the same weekend that Dumbo came out and was mm-hmm. completely overshadowed. That was one of the ones I was talking Not about. Not on Cinemaholics uh, because Will Ashton and I believe Corey Woodruff talked about Dumbo yeah. and the Beach Bomb. <laughs> oh, congratulations. Yep. Thank you for doing that, for, yep. for giving attention to what deserves it. Uh, yeah, the Beach Bomb is the movie where Matthew McConaughey just gets to be Matthew McConaughey for two hours and that's kind of it. And it's just... One of the most utterly enveloping movies I've seen in such a long time. It just, it shows me a side of life that I've never seen before. What it means to be just completely and utterly aimless and just have nothing to do and nowhere to go. Uh, and it's not afraid to like, to, to show the loneliness of that or the, the irresponsibility of that, but also it's just so enticing to watch. And uh, I, I would be, I would be curious to hear if it made like any uh, honorable mentions list of anyone that sent theirs, their selections in. Cause man, I just love this thing from beginning to end. And I was, the fact that it's only number eight is just, it just speaks to how good uh, I thought the rest of these movies are, but still like have uh, pretty much nothing bad to say about the beach bum. I love the hell out of it. Yeah. I, I have not seen the beach bum. That That's uh, oh, one of, one of three films on your list. This is the second one. That I have not <laughs> seen, Sam. Uh, you you managed to uh, really find the ones that that spoke to you, but clearly did not speak to me when it came to the marketing. Uh, but yeah, I haven't yes. seen the Beach Bum, but I know Will. You talked about it with Corey, and I vaguely remember you. Did you just kind of like it, or where were you at with it? Um, sorry, yeah. So I have a very kind of complicated history with Harmony Korine as a director, and that I mean I don't know him personally, but uh, as a filmmaker, as a view, uh, moviegoer, I I find that. I, I go back and forth between thinking like, is he brilliant or is he like an emperor who has no clothes? And he's just like, no, he's brilliant. Uh, I, I, I go, <laughs> I'm closer to the latter than the former, but here's what I'll say is that I think he has made two films that I really did enjoy. Uh, one of them was Mr. Lonely from 2008. And ultimately uh, um, the second one is this one, the beach bomb, which I think redeems him from spring breakers. And I think that what that film was like, pretending to say i think this movie actually says in a very vivid and personal way for him i think this i think the reason why i like this film and mr lonely is that they feel very personal to him in a way that doesn't feel like he's posturing so much as actually i think trying to say something and uh i i actually i think this movie in particular uh i've actually grown to like a good bit the more i think about it and i think you actually might be underselling uh matthew mcconaughey's performance in this because i really do think this might be one of his best performances it literally is yeah between this and serenity he's had a completely insane year but i am so glad for it because this is like 
this this might be like peak McConaughey. Not because it's like the most layered or nuanced right. performance. It's the most McConaughey performance you'll ever see in your entire sure. life. And it's, it's not. I mean, it. I just want to stress it's like not just him being himself. Like he does a lot of character work. I think more than people like recognize like i think he really puts a lot into his characters and i think that shows in his work and especially in this film in particular i think it just was a perfect role and perfect casting for him and he really makes the most of it and i think that's that's a key reason why i enjoyed this film as much as i did and i can see why you put in your top 10 yeah for sure and let's not forget snoop dogg who plays a character (laughs) just named lingerie which is (laughs) just pure joy in cinema and i and i love it that's the beach bomb again. Yeah, didn't make any other lists, but yeah, I have a feeling it's probably on a few honorable mentions. Uh, we definitely so. we don't know for sure though. All right, yeah. this next number eight is a tag team because Will and I both put this as our number eight. Did not plan this, but yeah, Will, what did we choose for our number eight film? Yeah, I I was uh, happily pleasantly surprised to see this as being our number eight pick. It is Jordan Peele sophomore film Us. Which, uh, yeah, I think we've talked about this considerably, and I feel like yeah. we I don't, are we in the minority on this film or not? In that, like, I feel like it got really good reviews, but then in the months since, people have somehow considered this like a disappointment. I think I don't so. Really get it? I, I well, I think that it it didn't resonate with the general public nearly as much as it did with the initial critical reception. It premiered at South by Southwest to a lot of applause. And then, yes, you and I both really, really enjoyed it, obviously. And it's been in my top five most of this year. Uh, so it, it's only been pushed down pretty recently by a couple of other films. And I I don't know what it is exactly, but I think it is a, it's not as an accessible film as Get sure. Out, his first film. Yeah. It's one that I, I disagree with some people who say that it's a film that you can fully appreciate, even if you're not digging into the Easter eggs and the clues, because it is a very esoteric film. There's a mm-hmm. lot of symbolism, hidden meanings. It's hard to take a lot of aspects of us seriously. And I think what's happened is that over time, people have reconsidered the movie and have figured, well, this this whole thing metaphorically doesn't make as much sense. Of like They don't explain this enough. And it, it's a small side effect of the whole cinema sins effect, where people be, feel sure. like if a movie doesn't fully explain why something is or why these people have scissors, for example, example then that is a flaw that means the film's not as good as you think it is it's a weird thing is that like i've talked to people who said the exact opposite which is that like some people think it doesn't explain enough some people say it explains too much so like no matter what someone's okay there's there's a i think (laughs) one piece of dialogue in particular that is slightly over explained and that's the one case where i don't think the dialogue is heavy-handed i think in every other case it does not beat you over the head with what's going on but there is Mm -hmm. a monologue from the main villain in this film that does sort of go on and on and you're like well you you don't need to keep talking about this (laughs) i like the mystery aspect but yeah Mm -hmm. but no i agree that like i don't really get why I, I get why people are critical of the film in some respects but I, I feel like acting like Jordan Peele didn't put a lot of thought in this seems to be wrong because I, I like you've suggested before I think this is incredibly thoughtful and like not only as far as like what it's trying to say and the metaphor of it but how it's structured and how it yeah. told its story I, I I think it's only an improvement uh from Get Out and I really like Get Out like especially upon rewatch I, I think that's Certainly an amazing film, and I think this is only showing that he is getting better and wiser as a filmmaker, and it's very exciting to see. I agree fully. I think what I like about this film a lot, and for me, this is my highest rated horror film of the year, and by a decent margin. Uh, I didn't care for a lot of the horror films in 2019, unfortunately, 
But for this one, I just found it to be incredibly moving. And not just in the fact that, yes, you're scared by what's happening and obviously the imagery and the sets and all of that. It's terrifying what happens in this movie. But part of the reason I was terrified is because of how much I loved these the central family at the heart of the movie and what they were able to bring on screen and their chemistry together, their relationships. It felt so real and personal. I was really, really moved by how Jordan Peele is using films and horror films in general to to just have a place for for black families to be represented without it being all about race and racism. I think that's one thing about Get Out that that film is fully committed to expressing. But in this film, it's clearly something that is still highly political, is still about uh, a mm-hmm. lot of things, but I think what us transcends is its conversation about the major themes of our time. And you'll notice that a lot of the films in our top 10s uh, I'd say this one in particular are about class warfare. They're about the forgotten people in society. They're about the ones who we 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 just don't consider as as important to us. And it's something that I think is very effective in this year in particular because we hear a lot about like eating the rich, uh, but then not at the same time not recognizing our own privilege for some of us at least who do have a lot and at the expense of other people. And for me, that's why Us is easily one of the most essential films of the year. And it just happens to be incredibly well-made as well. For sure. Yeah, I I echo everything you say. And the only thing I'll add is that, I mean, I just want to comment, like, the craftsmanship of the film is impeccable. I mean, even more so than I think Get Out. Like, the way that movies put together is really, really impressive, especially from a cinematography and sound design standpoint. And uh, I also just want to commemorate, like, this is also, like, a really funny movie. (laughs) Like, it's obviously a horror film first and foremost, but uh, the comedy that's laced in here, I think, is really well done. Agreed as well. All right. Sam, uh, did you consider Us or have you seen it? Did you uh, have a room for it in your honorable mentions? Uh, I did see Us. It made it uh, kind of low into my honorable mentions. I am a little uh, a little more critical of the movie as both of y'all were saying, but I also hesitate to talk about it because, uh, and I don't know if both of you remember this, but I saw it like a few weeks after it first came out just because I couldn't find time uh, upon its initial release. And it was just, I just picked a very bad day to finally see it because I actually kind of dozed off in the theater a little bit. And that wasn't the movie's fault because before that I was really into it. I was like, this is some fascinating imagery, uh, and some great ideas. I realized very quickly that Jordan Peele is not just doing another get out. And that's, I think kind of, uh, a tragic mistake to make is just thinking that it's going to be kind of the same deal. Uh, and it's clearly a very different kind of movie. And, I've been looking forward to rewatching it. I'm ashamed that I just have not gotten around to that yet. Well, and made quite a few other lists as well. It's on 11 other lists. So impressive to see Ethan Edgehill put it at number seven. Tyler Carlin put it at number five. So did Jay Colland at number five. Uh, Adonis Gonzalez put it as his number four. Chris Evangelista had it at his number six. Corey Woodruff had it pretty high. Number three. But mm-hmm. Julia Tatey, not quite as high at number 10. Robert Yannis Jr. at number 7. And the person who had us the highest was May Abdelbaki. She had us as her number two film. And you'll notice, too, her top three films, as I was mentioning, are all films about class warfare. So kind of interesting mm. to see there. Yeah, uh, you guys can see, but the listeners can't, <laughs> which ones I'm talking about. But uh, yeah, that clearly a big theme of 2019. Big, big class warfare energy there. All right. 
those were our number eight picks. Uh, let's let's hear. We we have another another sound recording from. Oh wait, no, we don't. I'm flying by the seat of my pants, guys. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Oh, God. Hi there. It's uh, <laughs> who can I pretend to be? Um, Hi everyone. John Lovitz here. <laughs> John Lovitz. <laughs> One other thing about us is that it is on our combined rankings. You'll see that it's not anybody's number one pick, but it's the highest film on the Cinema Hawks Top Twenty Five that was not put as number one anywhere. So interesting fact there. Let's get into our number hmm. seven picks of 2019, Sam. This film was Will's number 10, as we mentioned That's earlier. Right. What's that film? That film is a movie that I got to review on the show with both of y'all, and I was excited to do so. Uh, it's it's a little movie called Ad Astra to the Stars, uh, which is uh, the space movie with Brad Pitt, as you'll probably remember it. Uh, that was the one where it was the not-too-distant future, and Earth was sort of... Uh, on the verge of dying out, or at least not not in a not in a tremendously great state, and so we've moved outwards to the cosmos. Uh, and uh, what happens is that you know mission control or ground control, so to speak, starts getting the mysterious transmissions, and they have reason to believe that it is Brad Pitt's long thought dead father, uh, played by Tommy Lee Jones, and they say we're going to send you out to the far reaches of the solar system. Uh, to figure out what's going on because this is jeopardizing the uh, the the existence of Earth. And so the movie just follows that journey. And it's just as infinite and existential as it sounds. And I love the hell out of it. And I know, Will, you did too, right? Yeah, it was, uh, like John said, my number 10 pick. Uh, it's a film that, yeah, I mean, I don't think it quite was uh number seven for me but uh yeah i I really appreciate the film really resonated with his themes and uh, i have uh i'm very glad that james gray got the budget that he did to make this film so it it feels like kind of a last of its kind in some respects especially coming from 20th century fox yeah i'm I'm the outlier here because um yeah ad astra not a film that i particularly cared for i think it might be in like my top 50 something like that Uh, a film that i I do see a lot of its merits and uh, i did enjoy certain set pieces in ad astra uh, for sure particularly whenever the action was sort of broken up and we we had a chance to to experience this film some of his more ponderous questions about what life would really be like if space travel became as common as as uh flying right now to another country but while still James Gray found a way to really illuminate like how grueling and terrifying and precarious space travel can be, but also how tedious it can be. I I didn't really dig the whole Apocalypse Now format that they applied to this. I think the constant voiceover really dragged it down for me, and I I just really didn't care for how this film ultimately resolves. And the more I've I've reflected on Astra, the more I found myself being kind of bored by thinking about Ad Astra. So not the movie for me, but uh, I'm an outlier, of course, because it showed up on a bunch of other lists. It showed up on eight other lists for the Cinemaholics. Brandon Katz had it as his number 10. Ryan Oliver had it as his number five film. Matt Serafini had it at number eight. And uh, Charlie Ridgely had it at number five. Kimber Myers had it at number four. And the person who had it as the highest film was Candace Frederick. She had it as her number three film of the year so we'll probably be seeing ad astra uh 
on a certain definitive ranking <laughs> coming up <laughs> later in this episode. I think that's going to be the case. But all right, let's move on to Will, your number seven pick. It's not at Astra. Uh, what did what did you choose for number seven? Uh, yeah, I'm still riding the uh, A24 train, as you'll probably see from a couple of my picks. But uh, yeah, my latest pick was uh, The Lighthouse, which is Robert Eggers' sophomore film. Another sophomore film from a horror director. Um, this one, though, decidedly not quite the same as us. Uh, it's Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe, both giving tremendous performances in a black and white period piece where two uh, seaside men lose their minds in a uh, lighthouse, as the title suggests. And uh, for me, this was just one that was just pure giddy fun. Um, I love the style of it. I love the its kind of quirky, sophomoric sense of humor. Uh, I really appreciated just the buildup and the sandy of it. And it was just a good time at the movies. I really just had a lot of fun with this. Um, and I really enjoyed the performances and the, the craftsmanship of it in particular just stood out to me in a major way. So, and that's kind of funny for me because I didn't really, I, I like The Witch, but like this one, I think struck my fancy a little bit more. And I think they actually complement each other really well. I think as I suggested in our conversation of it back in October, I think they, they're kind of of the same coin just on the opposite side. So um, yeah, this one, uh, I can see why you and a couple other people weren't as crazy about it, but I just had a good old uh, splash, but or what's it? Swashbuckling good time <laughs> with this film. <laughs> yeah. It, not quite as high for me for sure it didn't it missed my honorable mentions but not by that much I, I i really dug the idea behind the lighthouse and the cinematography of it the aspect ratio it's barreling toward insanity unlike the movie us i didn't find myself thinking and reconsidering its symbolism and what it was trying to say beneath the text uh, as i've reflected on it so it, it didn't quite have that effect on me but I know that it, it has been for other people. But what, what about you, Sam? Are you, are you a fan of The Lighthouse? Uh, I dug The Lighthouse. It's it's uh, somewhere in my top 50 or thereabouts. Um, I, I love that you love The Lighthouse, Will. And I think it's funny to me that uh, like what you got out of it the most was that it was just a jolly old good time at the movie. Because this is mm-hmm. like a dirty, grimy, claustrophobic noisy. descent into madness. Noisy, yeah. The, uh, Smelly. I... I I saw um, another movie. Yeah, fats. <laughs> I saw another movie completely unrelated, also fantastic. I saw Pain and Glory at a theater uh, that was also playing. That was also playing the Lighthouse, and I heard the sound of the Lighthouse <laughs> in the other theater I was working at. So that's the kind of volume we're talking about. There is a scene in the Lighthouse where Willem Dafoe curses out Robert Pattinson yeah. and is one of the greatest monologues mm-hmm. i've ever heard in my life and i hope that willem dafoe gets nominated for an app for an oscar single-handedly for that scene so they can play it at the academy awards i would i would love that to pieces because man i want to memorize that thing and just unleash it at will well somebody wrote like that you can find online like the whole like scripted dialogue of it if you want to memorize oh, yeah. it yeah so it's not to. hard to find it's easily one of the most quotable films of 2019. I will mm-hmm. I will put that right out there. It really is. But that's The Lighthouse. It made a quite, quite a few other lists as well. So it showed up on seven other lists. And it was Chris Sheridan's number four pick. It was Kaylee Donaldson's number three. Ethan Edgehill had it at number five. Ryan Oliver had it at number seven. And we actually had two people have it at number one, Emily Kubinkinek and Skylar Schuler. 
So they nice. really dug the lighthouse. Uh, so yeah, definitely one of our more popular films. And then, yeah, great to see. I had a feeling Robert Eggers was going to find a bigger audience with this, but uh, I can't say that I, I think it broke through in the way that the witch did. I think that's a movie people still talk about that had a lot of per, like right. permeation. Yeah. I'm not sure about the lighthouse, but it's definitely not far behind that film. I'd say, I mean, you I don't know. say, yeah, I mean, I don't know, but like, I, I will say, I think that the witch is, I would say this like a little more thematically dense film of the two for sure. But I, I do think this one just being more idiosyncratic, even compared to The Witch, which is a pretty idiosyncratic film as well, uh, and just being as weird and uh, outlandish as it is, I could see it being more niche and off-putting. But yeah, I really, like I said, I just dug the hell out of this thing. All right. Well, that is The Lighthouse. My number seven pick is Loose, which is not on anybody else's list uh, for us, but it was on one other person's list. It was Candace Fedrick's number eight pick. And Loose is a film that I really, really dug. Saw this, uh, I think, back in early fall. And this is from director Julius Ona, uh, which is from a screenplay that he worked on with J.C. Lee. This is another film starring Kelvin Harrison Jr. And as much as I really liked Wave Waves, Loose is, I think, his breakthrough performance. Uh, he plays yeah, for sure. this mm. high school senior who was a formerly a child soldier who was adopted by uh, white parents played by Naomi Watts and Tim Rothman. And the film follows a sort Tim of Rothman. cat and oh, Tim, <laughs> Tim Roth, <laughs> Tim Rothman. <laughs> uh, Tim Roth, right. who John is the McRoyman. man. <laughs> I just think he's uh, very manly, Tim Roth. Uh, but yes, he's, a, he's adopted by those two. And the film follows a, a bit of a cat and mouse game that he, a mental sort of gymnastics he goes through with Octavia Spencer, who, one of my favorite performances from her in a while, Sorry Ma, the movie Ma. Uh, I can't say that was my favorite <laughs> Octavia Spencer performance, but not by I, a long I, We did get to see that together, though, John. That was That's fun. right. We did see that. Yeah. I will say, I mean, I won't defend Ma, the movie, but I do think Octavia Spencer is on like the right level of weird and crazy and committed in that film. So I'll, I'll commend her performance. In, that. in, in Loose, she is she is doing a wide, she, wide yeah, range great loose. of yeah. just um, vulnerable, for sure, but also strong, a little bit stubborn, and incredibly perceptive. Like nothing gets past this character, and that is that makes her the prime I don't want to say antagonist because I don't think there really is a protagonist in Loose. I think maybe the protagonist is truth itself <laughs> and all of these forces <laughs> kind of battling it out against these characters who are trying to maneuver a really complicated and troublesome just web of narratives and ideas. And Loose is the film that had me really just almost dry heaving uh, at the end credits. I was put through such a ringer. And uh, yeah, another film that's really stuck with me. And so I found plenty of room for it as my number seven film of the year. Uh, it was in my top five for quite a while and it just nearly got pushed out, uh, as you can imagine. So that's Loose. And yeah, I know this is a film that I, th I think you liked, Will, and it sounds like you liked it as well, Sam. I, I don't think you and I have talked about it. Uh, not specifically, no, but I did dig it. Um, I, I love how uh, there are a few times uh, throughout Loose where it sort of pulls the rug out and kind of like changes the way you look at all the events that have been taking place. So it's a really engaging story. Um, the circumstances I saw it in were not optimal. So I hope to get a chance to see it again on on home video or on streaming or something, because I definitely uh, I definitely think what you're saying is there. I just didn't necessarily see it the first time. So I love that you love it, though. Cool. And uh, did you have anything to add, Will? 
Uh, not really. I mean, to me, it's just like it is in my honorable mentions. I really did enjoy the film as well. Um, I do think you can tell that it's based on a play just based on how exposition heavy it is and uh, a couple other things. But uh, I did enjoy it, especially for the performances, like you said, from Kelvin Harrison Jr. Is it Harrison or Harrison? Harrison. Harrison Jr. And like you said, Octavia Spencer, I thought they gave some of the best performances of the year. And I am bummed that Kelvin Harrison Jr. isn't getting a little bit more consideration in award season right now for his work, because I do think that is some tremendous stuff. So maybe next year, maybe his next performance or two. We'll see. Agreed. Yeah, he has quite a few projects coming up that I think we can definitely look forward to. So that's Loose. And next up, we have another voicemail. Uh, This one is from Tyler Carlin co-host of Bacon and Eggs. Let's hear what he has to say about his number one film of the year. And not only that, but he he gave us his whole list. He wanted he wanted the listeners to know. So let's hear what he has to say. <laughs> Howdy, Yokes. It's me, Tyler Carlin, unsung hero of the Pixar theory and host of Bacon and Eggs, a movie lovers podcast and owner of WBNE.org. When I think about my trips to the movies in 2019, I can only lend my mind to thinking of the epics. 2019 was the year my wife was extremely sick for eight months and we were parents for the remaining four. Needless to say, my cup that can only be filled by sitting in a dark theater and munching on overpriced snacks was only so full this year, but only because of the breaks between our meeting. 2019 definitely brought a close to the first part of my life in many ways, both on screen and off, and I'm excited for the new beginnings moving forward. I've always been a fan of blockbusters, and 2019 definitely did not disappoint. Without further ado, here are my top 10 of 2019 coming in at number 10 detective pikachu 9 rocket man 8 captain marvel 7 how to train your dragon 3 6 frozen 2 5 us 4 book smart 3 klaus 2 rise of skywalker and 1 avengers endgame thanks bye all right that was tyler carlin yeah avengers endgame not a film that shows up on any of our lists it is in my honorable mentions and i'm glad he mentioned book smart there because uh, another film that's not on any of our top tens but definitely one of uh probably my favorite high school movie as i was kind of alluding to that earlier but yeah that's a avengers endgame and definitely he's not the only person who had that pretty high on his list in fact there might be someone else we might be hearing from later who had it as their number one as well mm. it's not sam um or will <laughs> or me. all right let's get into our number six picks sam what do you got my number six is a movie that will has no idea what it is uh and and judging from the online sentiments that i've caught wind of uh he's not the only one it is a documentary uh largely um largely controlled creatively by uh, Gina Davis of many movies fame, you'd recognize her, called This Changes Everything. Um, It is a documentary which, through uh, interview footage and uh, just cold, hard facts more than anything else, really gets to the meat of just how unbalanced the film industry is when it comes to gender representation. Um, it is a movie that just that just keeps hammering its point in in a way that does not feel pandering or uh, oppressive in any way that it might sound like just from the description. Um, it it really supports what it's saying and says, no, this is not like it, it should not be like this. It should not be this staggered in one direction. Um, and it's really confrontational and just really urgent feeling in a way that uh, a lot of other documentaries just don't, to me, frankly. Um, maybe it's because I'm not a documentary fan or maybe this one is just that good. 
Um, it is really fantastic, and I highly recommend that you seek it out. It's on a it's on a variety of streaming services, uh, and it really it really just opened my eyes in a lot of ways that uh, that I thought were open before, but it turns out that uh, uh, I've got a lot of improving to do myself. So this was uh, really important to me. So I'm glad that I got to see it. And I don't know, like I I never uh, looked into how big of a release this got. So judging by the fact that Will never heard of it, um, I guess it didn't. I guess it didn't open in a lot of places. Had you heard of this before, John? I have, but uh, I really got to be clear that there is another documentary called "This Changes Everything," and it, oh, this no is kidding. not that film. Yeah, so that film came out in 2015, and I think it played at maybe TIFF. I want to say, uh, but. Huh. Yeah, the one you're talking about was directed by yeah Tom Donahue, and I haven't seen it. I, I remember hearing about it or doing some box office analysis for it when it hit limited release back in August 9th. But I think yep. because of the studio, it, yeah, it, it didn't get quite a lot of uh, quite quite a lot of uh, I want to say like reception or like it got great reviews, but not yeah. a lot of people were talking about it unfortunately. So uh, which yeah. is which is unfortunate because I think it really I think this really if it had been seen widely, I think it really could have could have started a lot of conversations that need to be had still need to be had yeah maybe so so that's this changes everything we'll see if that's the case this is your third outlier that you have not on anybody (laughs) else's list so uh yeah yeah uh excellent discoveries sam great stuff to recommend to all the listeners i just wanted to note that something i was thinking about earlier today was that i'm really bummed i didn't get any documentaries on my list it wasn't so much yeah they didn't see like that none of the ones I saw were worthy per se. It's just that I didn't really end up seeing a lot of documentaries, which is a shame because I know last year in particular, and I think like a couple years before that, like 2016, like there's like always like these like waves of like years of really great documentaries. I'm sure every year has great documentaries, but documentaries get a lot of notice and notoriety. And um, yeah, unfortunately it seemed like 2019, I didn't see a lot of documentaries on my radar. So I'll have to keep this one in mind. Thank you for the recommendation, Sam. Of course. Yeah, I have to echo that as well. Uh, I have a couple of documentaries in my honorable mentions, but yeah, n- none of us had a documentary besides you, Sam, in our top tens. Not a lot of documentaries, period, in anybody's top tens, except for a handful here and there. So uh, yeah, not that it was a bad year for documentaries, but I, I right, do think yeah. it was because we had some really good ones. I, I really like the Fire Festival documentaries, for example, yeah, Inventor. Apollo. Behind the curve. I mean, there were there were good documentaries. It's just none of them quite blasted to the forefront of my mind for sure. <laughs> As I say, I heard Amazing Grace a lot of great things about that one too. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, on yeah. Uh, at least. Um, I think that was on a list on somebody's list, if, but or at least uh, honorable mentions. I might be remembering wrong. And you mentioned Honeyland. Honeyland is well. yeah, a film I want to see. It made one person's list. So yeah, there's there's a few here and there, but definitely not as represented as the quality of these films might suggest otherwise. So. So thank you, Sam, for picking up the yeah. slack on our part. <laughs> Appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, speaking of which, uh, not a lot of contemporary Chinese films on people's lists. Uh, there were some here and there. Like one, for example, somebody found a place for The Wandering Earth, uh, which mm. is more of a, like a big budget kind of blockbuster out of China. Huge budget. It's, yeah. it's kind of insane. Also one of the highest grossing films worldwide of 2019. Yeah, that was like a huge uh, hit in China. Right? Oh, yeah. Big time. Yeah, one of their biggest of the year, if not the biggest, and uh, kind of a wild movie, one that I can't wait to see. But Will, your number oh, six pick, um, your number six pick is definitely one that uh, I I just watched, and I want to hear you talk about it. 
And I'm really, cause we haven't had a chance to discuss this one yet. So what's your number six pick? Sure. Um, my number six pick is the new film from Bygone or Bygan. I don't quite know how to pronounce his name and I apologize, but, uh, I think it's another sophomore film as well. It's Long Day's Journey into Night, which I believe came out in cons in 2018 and then got its official release in 2019. Now, this is a film that's primarily noteworthy for having a nearly hour long single take for the second half of the film, which was in 3D in China. And I think select uh, theaters showed in 3D in America. Hmm. But uh, I saw a 2D cut, so I can't talk about that version. But um, and I think it's also noteworthy because like in China, like they were playing it around New Year's and like apparently like when the uh, last kiss of the film happens, like it, it, they timed it so it'd be at midnight. There's a whole thing about that. You have to look up the details. The, but the marketing of this film was extremely effective. And but it was one of yeah. it was like an it comes at night situation where people were kind of furious <laughs> with uh, how this film was sold to them as kind of a straightforward, typical romantic film. And it's not that at all. Uh, yeah, I guess um, similar to it comes at night. I really enjoyed this as well. I guess I didn't. <laughs> you like I didn't you like it the, when the wool is pull, pulled over your uh, eyes. <laughs> I guess uh, I guess so. But um, yeah, this film, uh, without giving away too much, it's definitely a film that uh, follows a lot of the tropes of like the noir, the techno noir genre. But for me, it felt like a film that was uh, at first seemingly kind of too influenced by uh, the movies that inspired it. But then as the second half came into play, what could easily have been uh, the word I'm sure that John's going to use at some point, pretentious uh, decision, I felt actually really worked for me in capturing the dreamlike quality that I find I really value in the best films, which is that there's a sense of like emotional honesty, yet there is a sense of like, uh, disorientation yet um, elation and you're just watching it and then this movie it, it, I just caught it at a point where uh, I just really was swept up by it also it caught me at a time where like I was also not really sleeping a lot and I felt like this like point in my life like I felt like there was like this weird like gap between my dreams and reality and I think this movie just kind of caught me at that right time uh, so for me it's one I really valued from a technical level as well as a uh, story and emotional level and it's my number six pick yeah, I, it's funny you mentioned how you said you had a hard time sleeping before you watched this movie. I had an easy time because this movie put me to sleep so easily. Sure. And <laughs> Long day's journey tonight for uh, uh, no, short day's yeah, journey yeah. tonight. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I found this, this film painfully slow and extremely pretentious in how Begone just really expects you to be totally riveted by all of his sequences. I do think the one take is effective. It's my favorite part of the film. It did sort of take me on a bit of a ride, but I think it's the first section of this film that lost me immediately. Sure. And I, I just had a hard time getting into it and getting into a why should I care sort of mode. I do understand that the, you were right. This is his second film. And his first film was about the same location and it clearly means something very deep and meaningful to him so i i feel inclined to sort of recommend people watch that film first maybe that will help them i'm not sure into yeah. understanding really his connection to his hometown uh, i believe it's pronounced kylie and yeah. why it has a sort of effect because it does have a sort of a bizarre almost uh, aspect to its sense of location. And I did find myself in its long take really struggling to understand how they pulled off the filmmaking itself, which is always great to see. And uh, there's yeah. another film I'm going to be talking about later that it's going to kind of be the inverse of me and Will uh, talking um, of how we sort of took in these films dealing with long takes, so a little teaser for that. But yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah, I can be. I will agree that I think that's kind of the hurdle. Like you have to kind of get to a certain point in the film. I would say before the single take, but like the first like uh, 15, 20 minutes for me, at least I, it took me a little while to get into it. And I could see some people being willing to write it off before like the, you know, very climactic hour long moment. But I don't know. I think I, I can't imagine a film without one part of it or the other. Like, I think they complement each other really well, especially in retrospect. And I'm sorry you didn't like it as much as I did, but I know how this goes. I've known you <laughs> long enough to know this is going to happen. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, uh, that's Long Day's Journey and at Night. Didn't make it on any of our lists, but it is Chris Sheridan's number eight. And Sam, did you see this one or plan to? I didn't. I was hoping I could maybe squeeze it in right before we recorded this episode because Will's been been praising it for months now. So I was curious to see yeah. it. Um, it was playing at uh, one of my art house theaters uh, that I live near um, right at like the middle of May which was right in the midst of me trying to cram in every Godzilla movie that I hadn't been keeping up with while also preparing to leave to drive to San Francisco to meet John. Uh, so I just, I, I had to sacrifice this one in favor of weirdly enough, my number five, which I did uh, decide over a long day's journey tonight, but hmm. I regret not seeing it. Um, I look forward to seeing it as well as uh, Kylie blues, which is the movie that uh, you were alluding to. I don't That's know if right. You yeah. The title. yeah. I really want to see that too. Um, yeah. yeah. I think Sam, I think you'll enjoy it a good bit. I can't, guarantee you'll love it or anything but i I think knowing you and what you value in film i think you'll appreciate it for sure yeah it sounds like the kind of thing i dig so i'm looking forward to it yeah i'm just bummed that you didn't get to see in theaters but if you get to see it i think it'll be worth a while yeah i forgot i forgot to mention actually one one of the reasons i might have had a hard time getting sucked into it is i wasn't able to see in a theater i had to watch it uh, in my living room, which isn't nearly yeah. as spellbinding and easy to, I had to keep pausing it because I kept getting so tired and I had to just take little naps. But um, John, I'm sure John, watching it in the theater would have been better. I can tell you for a fact that your living room is spellbinding, so you bite your tongue. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. I hope you weren't. I hope you weren't pausing during the single take. <laughs> no, I didn't pause once during the single take. No, uh, it was all okay, during the enough. first half. Yeah, once the single fair take enough, happened, yeah. I was in, and I was like, "All right, I got to see this through the end." No, sure, no, no chance to uh, to pause. So, did you know about the single take going into it? I did. Well, yeah, you had talked okay, about just, it. Yeah, for sure. Okay, just making sure. So that's long day's journey in tonight. My number f- uh, six pick is Klaus, which or Claus, some people might say, but it just depends. <laughs> Whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Klaus is an animated Netflix film. It's not on any of your lists. Uh, Will, you have not seen it yet, but uh, Sam, you have seen it. Uh, this is on six other lists, and I'm so happy. It's my my favorite animated film of the year. It's an it's a hand-drawn animated film, which I do believe has maybe some CGI sort of incorporated into it. Uh, very yeah. m- much more traditional style. It's not something like Spider-Man to Into the Spider-Verse, for example, which is CGI, but it's sort of in a hand-drawn fashion. Klaus is much more old school. It's much more animated with flourishes and with painted sort of like stained glass cells. But the shading and the light textures of this is what makes this film really stand out in its animated way. This is from Sergio Pablos, one of the creators of Despicable Me. And it is a Hmm. a Christmas film. I can't remember the last time a Christmas film made it into my top 10 of any, any list that wasn't top 10 Christmas films, um, <laughs> but it's this wonderful family animated 
sort of comedic, well, not sort of, it's a totally comedic film, but it's so heartwarming as well. It's a detailed origin of Santa Claus. I've talked about it on Cinemaholics at least twice, I think, at this point. So I won't belabor it. I just really, really love this film. And it was in my top five for a while. It got edged out by one of the last films on my list that I saw before the year ended. But I know, Sam, you just recently, I think you said recently saw this one. Uh, what, what did you yeah. think of Klaus? I loved Klaus. It, it made it very high onto my uh, honorable mentions list. It is a warm, delightful, incredibly effective story. Uh, in addition to just being this really clever, like sort of origin of all the Christmas traditions uh, many of us are taught as children. Um, it's also just this really effective story of learning to see the world in a new way as we follow this main character, Jesper, voiced by uh, Jason Schwartzman, uh, as he enc- as he encounters just this just this uh, mysterious figure, uh, Klaus, voiced by none other than J.K. Simmons. The entire cast is uh, star studded. Um, yeah, Rashida Jones which as well. Yeah, Jim Cusack. I re- I recognized uh, Norm Macdonald immediately, which is hard not yeah. to recognize that voice. Um, plays sort of the humorous, smart aleck uh, ferryman. Uh, so that's delightful. It's it's really, really great. It's also my favorite animated uh, movie of the year. So yeah, glad that one of us uh, made room for it on our list. Yeah. Uh, Skylar Schuler had it the lowest. He had it at number eight. But Adonis Gonzalez and Ethan Edgehill, like me, had it as their number six film. Tyler Carlin had it at number three, as you heard earlier. And then the person who had it highest on their list, I was so thrilled when I saw this, was Jake Holland had it as his number two film of the year. Great taste, Jake. We we, we support you in all of your endeavors. Awesome. All right. Well, that is Klaus. We have another recording, another message from a contributor of the show. And this won't be the only time we'll hear something about this movie. surprisingly enough it's not on any of our lists but it is a cinemaholics favorite for sure this message comes Mm -hmm. from abby olchesi she's a writer and podcaster for think christian and i know what most of you listeners are thinking abby she's she had the same number one film as john did last year so clearly (laughs) she uh she had the same one this year unfortunately no um we, we differed this time but uh not a problem there let's hear what abby had to say about her favorite film of 2019. I feel like 2019 has been an exceptionally strong year for movies. It's been harder this year than others to easily identify a favorite movie because there have been so many that I've loved so much. However, Knives Out is the movie that I think has the best combination of script, performance, design, and direction, and that's what knocks it into the top spot for me. Ryan Johnson came back from The Last Jedi with an incredibly confident movie that's smart and funny and makes a timely statement. It's also a very well laid out mystery, uh, and it gives the audience all the clues that we need to figure out the central murder without making the solution obvious or cliche. It's one of the more satisfying experiences that I've had at the movies this year, not to mention the one with the set I'd most like to live in. You know, one of the things that I failed to mention when we were talking about movies like Ad Astra and Us is that these are sort of big blockbuster money-making movies that aren't based on any existing intellectual property. In fact, if you look at all three of our top tens, uh, myself, Will, and Sam, none of our films are based on existing IP, I believe. I think they're all original stories. And a few of them Mm. are blockbuster-esque films, like films with big budgets that made a lot of money at the box office that really had an effect. I think Knives Out is easily one of those films. And I'm so happy to see that. 
uh, like Ad Astra, or not Ad Astra, sorry, that was not as big of a moneymaker, like Us <laughs> uh, was in um, a couple other films on our list. This movie was so successful at finding its audience. People really got into Knives Out, and it is on a ton of lists for the Cinemaholics Top 25. A lot of people had it as their number one. They had it as their number twos and fours and threes, and it's it's all over the map. So I'm happy to see that. It's a film that's in my honorable mentions, and I really, really enjoy Knives Out. I can't wait to see it again. And I'm, I was kind of almost surprised that it didn't make any of our list. But was it close for you, Will? Um, not too close, but I mean, definitely it's in my top 20, I think, for sure. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I It's easily one of the most entertaining movies I've seen this year. And I really enjoyed the ensemble and the twist. And uh, I could easily see myself getting more enamored with this film as I think about it more and maybe watch it again at some point. But for now, yeah, I don't think it's quite top 10 territory for me, but... Uh, it's one I certainly appreciated. Uh, what about you, Sam? It was so close to making my list. I was so bummed out that I couldn't find room for it. I think it was like my number 11 or 12. So that gives you an idea of how close it was. Um, I love Abby's word choice of saying that this is just an utterly confident movie. Ryan Johnson understands that if you like put thought into something and enthusiasm and just a little sprinkle of talent... It can make something really, really special, and Knives Out is definitely that. I think uh, the theater I work at, it's been out for uh, almost a month and a half now. It is still selling out completely. Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker is not selling out completely, so that gives me a lot of hope that everyone is coming out in droves to see this. A new hope. I like it. Yes. <laughs> That's a reference to Star Wars. A uh, good one. Good I mean, one. yeah. Uh, what, a, what a wonderfully original film. You know, it just yeah. came out of nowhere. It, it was an idea Ryan Johnson's had for a while, I believe. And he, you can, mm-hmm. you didn't tell, or actually, I think he's been working on it and he just made it happen so fast where he had this idea. Yeah. He had an idea in mind for the cast and here we are. And I think, yeah, yeah between Daniel Craig and Ana de Armas and not in the rest of the cast, but those two are in particular, some of my favorite yeah. performances overall in 2019 and a lot of 2018 for that matter. Yeah. I have been quoting this movie nonstop. There's one line about a donut, which is just the funniest thing ever. Um, and uh, I love that there are two movies out right now that, Prove to me that Ryan Johnson is a great filmmaker. The other one is Star Wars Episode Nine, uh, but yeah, that's this episode is, uh, eight. Epi- no, no, no. I said that are playing in theaters. Yeah. Right oh, now. oh, episode so then nine. I see what you're saying. I thought you were saying okay. Yeah, a little, a little, a little, there. A little <laughs> jab at Rise of Skywalker. Will caught off. Will knew what you were going for. Yeah. Forgive me if you're a Rise of Skywalker fan. I didn't particularly care for it, but yeah, that's. Uh, I love that this movie exists, and I love that it made it onto so many lists. I was upset it couldn't make it onto mine, but what are you going to do? It's great anyway. All right. Well, with that, we are now in our top five films of 2019. Exciting. So, Sam, you have another film that was almost a general outlier. (laughs) Uh, It is an outlier for me and Will. But we don't have this one on our list. Uh, one other person had this on their list. Some of that you had a lot of synergy with uh, because yeah, you're, one enough. of your other outliers they had in their top 10, and that was Rebecca Polly. But what is your number five? And tell us all about it, because this is a film I have not even seen. Yeah, it's um, it, funnily enough, you were just mentioning how none of the movies on our lists are like uh, adaptations of anything. This one is the only one that might vaguely qualify because it is sort of 
uh, thematically inspired by a Swedish poem from 1965. Uh, that, uh, it is 1956. But that, that doesn't that doesn't count because I wasn't really thinking of that. I was thinking of based on like franchises. That maybe I explained that poorly, but that was more what I was thinking. Because these things you could say are somewhat adaptations, maybe on like a book or a short story. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Fair enough, and and forgive me for my little bobble of history. Um, but yeah, this this is most certainly not a, not an adaptation of an, ex- an existing franchise. It is a Swedish sci-fi movie that had a very limited release in uh late may mid to late may of 2019 called aniara uh and it is another space movie that i have been championing for ever since it came out it struck me immediately from the moment it began um it is a story of not unlike ad astra funnily enough how uh earth has sort of become unlivable so what's happening is that the government is shipping people by the thousands to the moon in uh, these great big, or or, uh, it might be to Mars, I forget the exact place that they're moving to, but regardless, they're emigrating away from Earth as it is unlivable in these huge space vessels that are like the size of the Axiom from WALL-E, to give you an idea of that. And uh, what happens is that one of these uh, space ferries gets knocked off course and their fuel is set up in such a way that they cannot change direction. They have to keep going straight, and their idea is, all right, we're going to wait until we approach the orbit of a planet or a star or a moon in distant space. We're going to use that to like slingshot around the planet and come back to where we're going. They're like, all right, great. How long is that going to take? It's going to take five years. And luckily enough, the ship is completely self-sustaining. They can live on it for as long as they want, but they are trapped drifting in space for five years. And as the movie goes on, that estimate keeps getting bigger. It was five years. Now it's 10 and it jumps forward. uh, It jumps forward in time repeatedly, eventually by the centuries, as it just keeps getting longer and longer, this descent into eternity. And it is utterly hopeless, but in a way that is not depressing. It is thrilling to think about just what would we do if we were given all the means to survive, to continue living just medically? Uh, Would we go on just because we could? And it is riveting sci-fi filmmaking of the kind that I never thought I would see uh, like in a modern sci-fi independent movie. And, And that's certainly what this is. And more than that, it is a really effective story of what it means to be constantly screwed over by an authority system that doesn't care about you. They might, like, just by extension, they might be interested in in salvaging your life if it's in their best interest. But at the end of the day, when it comes to you as a person, those in power do not care if you live or die. And I could not get enough of it. I was completely glued to the screen throughout um, it's one of the best sci-fi movies I've seen in years, uh, possibly decades. And I'm not even exaggerating when I say that it is stunning, uh, both visually and thematically and in all of its ideas. I love the hell out of it. I believe I might not be, I might uh, be wrong with this. I believe it's available on Hulu. So that is a very easily accessible place to see it. It's also available on 
uh, Prime and Google Play and stuff like that. So it is not like some Wasp movie that you can't see. Um, it Can just you, unfortunately did not reach that huge audience. Can you spell that real quick? It's A-N-I-A-R-A. Uh, right. And I have it right here. It is indeed available on Hulu. So cool. get on it, masses. <laughs> yeah, that's Aniara. And I, I couldn't help but notice, too, that this is a good year for these very like artful sci-fi movies. I know you both had Ad Astra on your lists and Wandering Earth, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, there's a film I'll be talking about a little bit later that kind of fits that mold. And so strong year. Mm -hmm. For for films that contemplate the depths of space and our place in it, and uh, happy to happy to see this one ranked pretty highly for you. I was so happy to see that it made uh, Rebecca Polly's list as well. When you That's when right. John John when you told me that I had three outliers, I thought I was like one hundred percent positive that this was one of them. I never would have thought that Aniara would have made more lists than The Beach Bum, but. I could not be happier about it. I would love to hear. I would love to hear Rebecca's thoughts on it as well. That's right. Rebecca put it as her number six film. So, uh, yeah, you guys, yeah. you guys are definitely on the same wavelength <laughs> when it comes to uh, a couple of these uh, choices that you have. But all right, let's yeah. go to uh, Will. Your number five, a film that I was expecting much more consensus. I would want to say between people on our list, it it was on I think five people's list total. And it's one of the most critically acclaimed films of the year, though. It's a film that mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people really love. Didn't make it on my top 10. Definitely an honorable mention. But what what is your number five? Sure. My number five pick is the Safi Brother film Uncut Gems, which stars Am Sandler and a slew of other people. I don't know if I should give any of them away besides like Adina Menzel. Um, who else is it? Uh, I'm blanking on his name. Kevin Garnett. Um, Keith Stanfield. Keith Stanfield, yeah, sorry, that's yeah. it. But Kevin Gardner is also in the film. Uh, yeah, uh, it's um, you know we've we've talked a lot about like Adam Sandler. I think a lot of people expect like at this point, like every ten years or so, he knocks it out of the park with this dramatic performance that gets undervalued or uh, doesn't do particularly well at the box office. Um, I think he kind of broke that trend this year with the Myra stories, but. Uh, yeah, Uncut Jump seems to be the first time that people are really taking Adam Sandler seriously as a dramatic actor, and I think that's long overdue. Uh, for me personally, uh, with uh, Punch on Glove, which is one of my favorite films, um, it just showed that he had a way of channeling his like aggression and like his anger, and also like this underlying melancholy and sadness in a way that uh, really showed layers to him as a performer, and which has made subsequently a lot of his subpar less comedies over the years. Uh, all the more disappointing but this film just felt like a true toy of force for him as well as uh seeing him working with two filmmakers who clearly seem to be honing their skills and really captivating a bunch of people as they continue to showcase what they're able to do behind the camera and yeah i really enjoyed this one um it i think it described it last week on the episode as a serious man a serious man by way of death of a salesman and uh, hmm. i'll stick by that also i think you said like a coen brothers script as direct as directed by martin scorsese and uh it it just was totally in my bag. I was uh, on a gambler's high throughout the whole time. Uh, <laughs> it was very intense, but exhilarating at the same time and uh, laughed a lot. I was stressed a lot and I couldn't have asked for anything more at the movie. So this is my number, I, my number five pick. Awesome. Yeah, this is somewhere in my top like 25, something like that, a film that I, I deeply respect. I don't like it as much as Good Time, but yeah, we just talked about this film on last week's show and I still feel the same way about it. Definitely really like it. 
I'm glad it's getting a lot of attention and really excited to see what the Softie brothers are able to do next with this sort of leeway they now have. They've really proven themselves <laughs> as just great directors. And Sam, I know you've seen Uncut Gems as well. Uh, did you enjoy it? I did enjoy it. I enjoyed it very much. Um, I was taken out of it a little bit because for a reason that like only I've had this problem, so maybe I'm just missing something, um, I wasn't quite sure how the directors in this case uh or the storytellers i should say in this case the directors um felt about the main character like i wasn't sure if they were uh like rooting for him to succeed or hoping that he would uh that everything would come crashing down it took me out of it a little bit but at the end of the day this is a completely thrilling movie um josh and ben safty are unlike any filmmakers that are working today and i love the word choice willie that you used just now of stressful this is a incredibly intense movie um getting to hear parts of it again uh sends shivers down my spine in the best possible way so yeah really really exciting filmmaking uh and i think the safties can only go up from here so no no pushback for me on this one to be clear i think at least for me i don't think the filmmakers want you to like howard ratner but i think they want you to get in his mindset and understand like how he gets into his lifestyle and so i think that's the balance of the film and i think that's why it works really well I think uh, so. he's supposed to be their father. So yeah, I think, I was, yeah, I I think their that, complicated yeah. feelings for their dad might come through your complicated feelings for this character. Yeah. I'm not sure mm-hmm. if it's based on or inspired more, but I, I know it's it's at least somewhat uh, uh, the in, the genesis for the character was from their father in some regard or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Based on. I did not know life. that. Interesting. Well, I mean, the kids in the film are basically supposed to be them, which is why I think it makes it an interesting companion piece to A Serious Man, where the Coens are represented by the kids in the film. So, yeah. Hmm. I didn't pick up on that. Fair enough. That's Uncut Gems. Uh, definitely a gem of a film for a lot of other mm-hmm. people on our lists as well. So this one this one showed up on five other lists, and the people who chose them were Matt Serafini. He had it as his number seven. He had the lowest. Uh, we also have Emily Kubinkinek, who had it at number four. Ryan Oliver had it as his number three. And Rebecca Polly, uh, she's back. She had it the <laughs> highest. She had it as her number two film of 2019. Uh, great, great year for A24. I know, well, you already kind of mentioned uh, a lot of A24 films made the cut for you. And uh, I don't I don't think a lot of A24 films are on my list. I think just one, but it's or two, actually. So, two, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. So, I got there eventually. <laughs> well, three. Um, what was the Farewell. It? The Farewell. Yeah. I for- oh, you're right. You're right. I got three. I, I'm all about A24 this year, as always. <laughs> all right. My number five film is one that this is the one I was sort of alluding to earlier with how it's kind of the inverse of the whole, the criticism I had on your film for number six, Long Day's Journey into Night. My film Which is, is funny because that was my criticism of this film. But yeah, go that's ahead, what sorry. I'm saying. So so my my pick for number five is 1917. It's the newest film from Sam Mendes, director of Skyfall, quite other few good films and this one stars george mckay and dean charles chapman as the name implies it takes place during world war one i talked about this on the show a few weeks back and 
like Long Day's Journey into Night, except with a bit of a distinction, the entire movie is shot in one take uh, on this suicide mission where these two characters are traveling behind enemy lines to deliver a message that will prevent an ambush. Unlike Long Day's Journey into Night, it actually is not a complete one take. The cuts are hidden. Right. Uh, yeah. So there's a few mm. cuts, but not a lot. And it's like an illusion of one take. And the purpose of that is to sort of make time lose meaning. As you move along with these characters, at, at some points you realize this is not real time. However, the movie does this amazing little trick where you don't even realize that actually hours are passing at this moment. And this is the film that mesmerized me, that had me wondering how in the world did they pull this off? But in a way that serviced the story, in my opinion, I think this film has gotten a bit of a criticism that the story isn't that strong. I definitely strongly disagree. I think this movie clearly comes into focus toward the end. There is a, a slow, methodical scene involving one of the soldiers uh, listening in on this moment happening with a certain platoon that just made the entire film. I it really brought it to me, where I understood what the purpose was. Uh, this is a film about how we interpret stories and how stories themselves are sequential. They're chronological, but they do have missing gaps. They have certain things that we, we don't get to be clued in on. But when you follow somebody through their own memory, this is a very close sequence. This is a close parallel to that experience. And for that reason and many more, 1917 is, is such an accomplished film, such a great crowd-pleasing, but also wonderfully made and technically challenging film that I'm glad people are going to be seeing it on the big screen pretty soon. I think it got a limited release on Christmas Day, and uh, as January rolls out, uh, more of you are going to be able to catch it. Now, Sam, it's on a, uh, one of the films that you want to catch pretty soon. I hope you do. But, Will, I, I think uh, you, it's your least favorite film of 2019? Or that's just how I feel, and I'm projecting that onto you. Well, as you guys have been prone to say a couple times this episode, it would be in my top 50 for the year. Um, <laughs> that's right. I, I like the film, to be clear, and I, I think it's hard to dismiss its quality as far as the production of it. I mean, if Roger Deakins does get a second Oscar for this, he's it's well-deserved, and he if he becomes... The Manuel Lubezki of the next couple of years, I, I <laughs> would be more than happy to see that happen. That would be wonderful. Referring, of course, referring of course to Manuel Lubezki's three wins uh, a couple of years ago. So, yeah, but for me, the film itself, I I think for me, unlike uh, Long Day's Journey and Tonight, where I felt like the long take, not only because it was actually one take, but it never felt like completely um, rigid in the way it does here. And it felt like I was constantly taken out of it because I was thinking so much about how they were making the film to the point where I found that the single take didn't really feel that effective until like one or two key scenes, one being around the middle and the second being the end of the film, like maybe the last 25 minutes or so, which I do really like. Like those two scenes I think are great and some of the best filmmaking of the year. And uh, I can certainly see why this is working for a lot of people. And I think it'll be a crowd pleaser. I just don't see it aging particularly well because I think outside the theater, I just don't think it's going to hold up as well as uh, you're projecting. But you could probably say the same thing about Long Day's Journey tonight. So fair enough. That's what we meant by, yeah, you could literally take our criticisms and it, we're saying the same thing about two different movies. And that is the the beauty of cinema is interpretation and perspective and these experiences, because you saw both films in theaters, but I only saw one of these in theaters. So what you're saying could very well be true. I wonder how I would have felt about 1917 if I had seen it for the first time on an iPad or, you know, a key fob, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. 
uh, as opposed to actually being in the seat (laughs) and experiencing the film as the filmmaker intended. So always something Mm -hmm. important to consider. This film made quite a few other lists as well, which I was really happy to see. It's on nine other lists. Uh, It's Aaron Dicer's number 10 film of the year. It is Matt Donato's number nine film. Rebecca Polly has it at number eight. Abby Olchesi has it at number seven. Brandon Katz and Skylar Schuler have it as their number four film of the year. Charlie Ridgely has it as his number three film. And Corey Woodruff has it as his number four. So uh, out of order there, I should have finished with Charlie. Charlie has it as number three, which is the highest. Uh, but yeah, he and, he and Corey had it pretty high um, considering. And of course, it's my number five. So a film that showed up a, a lot of people's like middle section. And I think for good reason. So it's a terrific film. We're seeking out once it hits your area. Yay. All right. That's uh, our number fives. Let's dive straight into our number four picks. Sam, you picked a film yeah. that I just recently saw. So I'm uh, not even sure you know what I think about it, but it's not. Well, on... I do. Oh, okay. <laughs> You've been <laughs> keeping up. Uh, all right. Well, uh, this is an outlier for all of our lists, but it's not an outlier. This is another film that Rebecca Polly has on her top 10. But uh, what's, what's the film, Sam? And uh, I know you've talked about it on Cinemaholics before. I have. Matter of fact, I got to review it the same week that I reviewed Ad Astra. So it, that turned out to be a very opportune weekend what for the movies. What a weekend movies. for you, yeah. Yeah, I, I loved it. And, and matter of fact, I think I saw these like one day after the other at the same theater. So that uh, was certainly exciting to get to see so much quality cinema in such a short period of time. Uh, if you listen to that episode, you'll remember that I gushed quite a bit about One Cut of the Dead. Um, which is a movie that has slowly been accumulating a lot of traction, um, both in uh, sort of the genre circles as well as just the general film discourse. Uh, it is the movie that pulls the rug out a couple of times, and that's the way that it sort of differentiates between the acts. The way it starts out is um, it looks like it's going to be a very sort of B-production, shabbily made a uh, zombie movie that's sort of that that's a little bit uh meta in how it in how it works because what happens is that there is a really effusive director directing a zombie movie and that's the movie that we're watching and what they don't realize is that the actual zombie apocalypse is breaking out and they have to react to that and it's uh really unique looking and uh just just sort of cheap fun and it goes on like that for about half an hour and then something happens and from then on uh it is completely delightful and so inspirational in uh, a way that so few movies are and this is all this is all going to be just repeating the stuff i said in that episode so i won't go on to for too long because i really don't want to ruin the reveals uh because this did not reach like a gigantic audience by any means so it would be a crime to say what happens from there but Suffice it to say, it really appreciates the just the thrill of movie making and uh, how despite all of the blood, sweat and tears that goes into it, it is worth it at the end to contribute to this great art form that we call cinema. And uh, I was frustrated that it only made a measly number four on my list and uh i'm thrilled that rebecca had it on our list as well we should rebecca we got to compare notes sometimes because apparently we're on (laughs) multiple of the same pages so i'm glad to hear that uh and i know that both of you have seen it and we're not quite as high on it so uh that's that's hmm, 
That's not <laughs> thrilling to me, yeah, but yeah. fair enough. So just just narrowly missed my my honorable mentions. I filmed that. Uh, I did really enjoy watching. I think uh, Will and I talked about this a little bit last week because I had just seen it for the first time. But we kind of agreed that it, it's the middle section that kind of slowed things down a little bit too much. But man, the, the ending of this film really, it, they really do nail the landing. And uh, I, by the time the end, I, I found myself uh, really reveling in the joy of this movie. This is, a, this is clearly by a filmmaker who understands what's great about making movies and why it's fulfilling and the happy accidents that can come into play. So yeah, definitely a film that I'll probably like even more upon rewatch. So I'm looking forward to when that inevitably happens. And then, well, yeah, I know you had pretty similar comments on the film. You you like it, but don't quite love it as much as Sam and I guess Rebecca. Yeah, I mean, I I think I exactly echo what you just said, and I think the only uh, well, I, I think that's about it. Yeah, I don't have any point of contention for that. <laughs> All uh, right, high five. Add, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was gonna, I was going to say that the only thing um, I I have in my honorable mentions, but that's about it. All that's right. All, I have well, to add. <laughs> yeah. all right. Well, that's one cut of the dead, a film that yeah, all three of us can appreciate on different levels, but obviously one worth mentioning and recommending to all of you to check out. I believe it's still on Shutter, and you can mm-hmm. find it on there and streaming in other locations as well to rent and own. All right, we have another audio recording kind of coming in while we're talking about our number fours because this is the one audio recording that we got. That was on somebody's list, which is so crazy. Last year, uh, there were multiple recordings. I think almost all of them were on one of our lists. This year, there was only one that was on our list, and it's Will's number four film. This is coming from Matt Serafini, his favorite Mm -hmm. film of 2019. If you don't know, Matt is a co-host of It Ain't Ogre Till It's Ogre with Will Ashton himself. So a little bit of a synergy between you two, you Mm co-hosts. Wonderful to see. Let's hear what Matt picked as his favorite film of the year. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood is this year's movie that hit me the hardest. Yes, I'm biased as, like Will, I'm born and raised in Pittsburgh, PA. In fact, for my fourth birthday, my parents actually took me to visit the studio where Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was filmed. Mr. Rogers is really near and dear to my heart, so it's natural that a biopic about him would work for me. But that's where this movie decided to do something more interesting. Using Fred Rogers as the antagonist of the Fred Rogers movie is such a stroke of genius that you have to just commend it. Tom Hanks is also delivering such an incredibly nuanced performance here as this larger-than-life figure, which is really saying something when he himself is larger than life. The fact that he managed to convince me that he's Fred Rogers is really genuinely impressive. Additionally, this movie works as a really good companion piece to last year's documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor. That movie shows you who Fred Rogers is, this movie shows you the effect that he had on people. Marilyn Heller is a true artist. The little touches are what make this movie really shine. The interstitial miniature segments, the purposefully piano-focused score, the heavy use of silence, and the excellent performances all mixed together in a movie that really is the medicine that we all need this year, and that makes it my favorite. That was Matt Serafini, co-host of It Ain't Ogre Till It's Ogre, and his pick was A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, and uh, I'm, I'm happy to see it. It made quite a few other lists, but he was the only person who had it as his number one, and Will, I think uh, I think you have a lot to say about this film. Oh, for sure. I mean, I was just going to say real quick that uh, since you keep bringing up any Ogre Tits Ogre, I'm just going to do a quick plug and say <laughs> that go. the uh, season three finale is now available. It hit New Year's Eve. And if you want to check it out, uh, it's a lot of fun. We had a lot of friends come over and uh, we finally put Garfield the movie to rest in a way that I think was uh, <laughs> fittingly apathetic, but also uh, a good time all the same. Um, but anyway, yeah, so my number four pick is a much better film, in my opinion, than um, 2004 is Garfield the movie, which is, as you said, a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Uh, this is a film that surprisingly enough, a recent 
months I've been or last month, I guess, because I've only been out for two months. I've been noticing more kind of consenting feelings for his film. Like I've been hearing people like feeling a little more mixed to negative on it, I guess, just maybe because they were expecting one thing and they got another thing or uh, I guess they they didn't really appreciate what the movie was doing. But for me, it was like, like Matt was saying, just like the perfect mess. And I think it just came at the right time. It also was obviously a film that is uh, based on a personal idol of mine, a local one, as well as a pop culture one. And I, I was very nervous about this film. I just was really hoping it wouldn't suck. And I think it really works. Like, I think it works better than some people are giving it credit for. And I mean, I, don't think that's only because of Tom Hanks' performance, which admittedly, I think he doesn't like transform completely into the figure, but I think he captures essence in a way that I found really affecting and moving. And for me, this is easily the most emotional movie experience I had this year, uh, somewhat based on nostalgia. But I really do think, like Matt was saying, it's based on Marielle Heller's approach to this film, which is understated to be sure, but I think it is meaningful. And I, I really feel like this is going to be one that uh, sticks with me for a good while. And I can't wait to see where Marielle Heller continues to go with her career. I could not agree more with almost everything you just said, because A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, it's my number 13 film of the year. And it was even higher. And I just found myself switching things around because other films just had different effects on me for whatever reason. But yeah, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, just such a great surprise of a film. I did not expect the film that we got and what it was able to do emotionally to me in particular. And uh, just for me, my connection, I've always had more of a connection with Tom Hanks than I have Mr. Rogers. I didn't watch a lot of Mr. Rogers growing up. So somehow this film still hit me in a way uh, with that dueling nature of it is Tom Hanks sort of filling in that that character, and as Matt was kind of saying, almost like an antagonist to our main character, but an antagonist in a good way, uh, I would certainly, and I hope you would argue as well, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, look, look at Marielle Heller, look what she's going to do next, because she has such a knack for taking scripts that could be so easily messed up mm-hmm. by other filmmakers mm-hmm. who just will put out the most mediocre, forgettable garbage. I'm thinking of Can You Ever Forgive Me? Uh, even something like Diary of a Teenage Girl, which could have easily been a film that came nowhere near the spirit and liveliness of the well, the, no, like, the graphic novel. But I mean, that could have been a disaster in the wrong seriously. Like, if, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Considering how sensitive that subject matter yeah. is in particular. With this one, this could have been a treacly, just manipulative, oh, yeah. cloying film, and it is not in any way. So, right. yeah. Well, I, I'm so glad it's your top five. I'm not surprised at all. I'm surprised it's not in mine. So, yeah. Um, Sam, uh, tell us all about how much you hate A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Uh, I I wouldn't be able to because I'm actually on the same page. This made it very, very high into my honorable mentions. It's certainly in my top 20. Um, it's uh, I, I felt very similar to this that I did to Jojo Rabbit, um, it, where it just gave hmm. me tears. Don't groan at this, Will, because I'm complimenting a movie. <laughs> See, I know, I know, I know, but having to compare the films, it's a, it, it doesn't <laughs> quite sit with me well, but I know it comes from a good place whatever uh yeah so the- <laughs> uh yeah i i love the hell out of this it's, it it gave me tears throughout um and I, and i have no tremendous connection to mr rogers or pittsburgh no slight to either of them they just have sure. not been a huge presence in my life um and i love i was actually kind of frustrated when this first came out uh that uh Marielle heller as a directorial presence wasn't like used in a lot of the advertising of this movie, which I thought was 
would surely be a good idea. Certainly not a bad one, at least. Um, I think she's a really fascinating filmmaker and does things that are unconventional, uh, especially in, in a year where there were a lot of really impressive uh, unconventional biopics, or at least uh, movies based on true stories. You talk about uh, Rocket Man, which I know made a handful of lists, or Queen and Slim, which made it really high in my honorable mentions. I dug the hell out of that movie. Uh, or Pain and Glory, which is not directly biographical, but is really heavily based on true story. Uh, same thing with Hustlers. We had a lot of really fascinating, interesting approaches to the uh, based on a true story movie. Same thing with The, the Farewell. So uh, interesting year, and this was certainly one of the better ones in that in that milieu, if I may use that critic <laughs> word. Got to point out the souvenir as well. For talking about, it. oh yes, yeah, I forgot about. And that. you could argue once upon a time Hollywood. Oh, I guess. My. no, no, uh, I wouldn't. <laughs> I would not. I would not either. Yeah, and Dark Waters, The Irishman. Yeah. There, there were the the list goes on. Uh, one thing, I mean, I don't say it's a humble brag, just more as a point, just just in case there could be any perceived bias. Um, I did see this movie at the premiere, the local premiere, like with the filmmaker and stuff involved, but I still think the movie really works on its own merits. I, I, I mean, I know that might have elevated my experience, but um, I, I, I do have to mention that bias just in case that that might have influenced my position in the film. Well, I, I saw it. I saw it in the opposite circumstances, like. That I was not in the right mood for that movie. I watched it in a crowded theater. I wasn't in the seat I wanted to be in. I had a bad angle on it. I was surrounded by really noisy people, and I loved this movie even still. So, I I would I wouldn't worry about it too much. All right, good deal. Yeah. That's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. It's Skylar Schuler's number ten film. He had it the lowest. Uh, we also have it on Aaron Dicer's list. He chose it as his number seven. Abby Olchesi put it as her number four. We already mentioned Matt Serafini, of course, had it as his number one. But the other person who had it pretty high was CJ Mellon. CJ put it as his number two film of the year. Nice. So that is a beautiful day. Let's move on to my number four film, which is another outlier for the three of us. But it was on seven other lists, which I'm so excited about because it's a film that's not easy to find right now. Uh, it's only playing in New York and L.A., and of it's course. not going to be getting its wide release until February. As you can hear from Sam's bitterness, Ugh. he has said multiple times to me as if it's my fault. that It, that... it is your fault, John. <laughs> you're, you're part of the problem. I'm furious that these movies are only available to like okay. the well, haves. And it's not have playing nots. in San Francisco yet. So I didn't get to see this on a big screen, which I am very upset about. And I'm going to be seeing this on a big screen as soon as it comes to this area. I had to watch this um, as a screener, which I'm very, very privileged to have done so this movie is my number four and it is portrait of a lady on fire one of the last films i saw in 2019 in fact it's the only film in my top 10 that i watched in december so like the last month and uh because yeah because i think i saw 1917 right before december or maybe maybe 1917 was the other one so uh <laughs> regardless portrait of a lady on fire i I don't even know where to begin with this film. I know it's one that both of you want to see as soon as possible. For those of you who don't know, this is a French historical film that premiered at Cannes Film Festival. It competed for the Palme d'Or. I cannot believe it didn't win. Um, however, it did get some attention uh, on other merits like its screenplay. This was directed and written by Celine Schiama. Uh, I hope I'm saying her name correctly. And my goodness, this is a poetic, and just 
absolutely mesmerizing romantic film. And if you've sort of if you've sort of heard of films of this kind that uh, take that are made in a European country and it features a lesbian romance at the center of the film, you might be thinking, okay, maybe this film sort of exists to sort of just be a revisionist sort of like, oh, the the thrill that there's sort of almost pornographic desire for current filmmakers to try to like do these what if stories that take place, even though to an extent, like I, I do personally believe that a lot of romances like this did happen um, in the times when they would have been completely taboo by society. Now oh, yeah. we can sort of explore these passionate affairs through a different lens. And I think the reason this film works in ways that other films of its kind do not, and mm-hmm. there, there are a few that I could definitely cite offhand, this one is does not exist for male gaze whatsoever. This is a film where the gaze is human and it is female, but it is especially human. And the the romance between these two characters is not even the main narrative. In a sense, it is. But as you're following the story, and I, I don't want to give a lot of way, which is why I'm not doing a traditional synopsis. But I think the, the easiest and sort of like most carefree synopsis, I suppose, is that we are fo- following this woman who goes to this estate. She is a painter and she has to secretly paint this woman who does not want her her image to be captured. And why that is is something that I'll, I'll leave out, of course. But what happens here is it's such a testament to artistic expression in particular. Uh, the whole movie is artistic expression on fire. I mean, if you want a movie that is perfectly vivid, that is this film from the first frame. I was like, these colors that I'm seeing, I, you don't usually see colorful vibrant films of this kind and of this sort of drama in in this time period i should say too because this is i think like 18th century or 19th century or no sorry it's like at the very end of the 18th century you you don't see films of this nature so vivid and colorful usually it's like okay we're gonna do like a black and white film right and um, obviously that can be done to great effect but instead of the the filmmaker wanting to this feel wanting this to feel like a memory. What she wants you to understand is that, no, this is something that is very right now. It's universal because Mm -hmm. this is the sort of thing that can still be taboo. And this is the sort of thing where you can feel the longing. You can feel the, I cannot be with this person in the way that I want to be with them. No matter what time period you're in, no matter how you personally experience attraction. And this is one of the best films I've ever seen at illustrating, and I mean that pun fully intended, one of the best films at illustrating how attraction works and how we as human beings find ourselves drawn to others and what we do about it. And the, the main performances here are from Noemi Merlant, Adele Hanel, Luana Bajrami, and Valeria Galino. And as you can probably tell, these are all women. And that's because I think there's only one line of dialogue spoken by a man. And Hmm. what a refreshing thing, I thought, because uh, this is shot by a woman as well, Claire Mathon, and it's edited by a woman, I believe a woman, Julianne Lacheray, which I I believe I read was a woman, but if I'm wrong about that, I apologize. This film is just, it thoroughly is caring and painstakingly obsessed with how women perceive the world as sort of a counterbalance. How many films do we get that, that don't even pay any mind to that? That any of that sensation. And I absolutely loved it because I found myself transported not into the female mind, 
but into what women want us to understand as men. And it's, it's tough to, I know it's tough to talk about this film as a man and we're all men here, obviously, but hopefully I think we definitely need to have some other people on this show to talk about this film in more detail because I absolutely will not be able to do it justice. No, I was just giggling because you just said the the title, like what women want, the, the, what's that? the uh, Nancy Myers movie. Uh, and speaking of which, I think this film, one of my favorite movie titles, uh, one of the best films to to be titled, actually. And you'll understand that more as you watch the film. But yeah, sometimes it feels like people just, just name their film something because, uh, yeah, I guess it has to have a name. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at you, Waves. Uh, definitely uh, yes. not a film I, I think is well titled in particular. Uh, it comes at night, but no, uh, Portrait Get of the Lady out. on Fire, one of the best movie titles of the year. In fact, I, uh, if not the best, so, uh, high, high praise for me. And I have a feeling it will, uh, speak to both you, Will and Sam in some level. I hope you guys enjoy this one as much as I do. Yeah. I mean, I think. Great. Thanks, uh, John. <laughs> Can't wait to see it. You're just making it worse, aren't you, John? I'm reminded of when <laughs> of when we saw Rocket Man and like the seating arrangement was such that you were up on the luxurious <laughs> balcony and I was down with the have nots. Because this they wouldn't like let the you sit in the Okay, was it my fault? Except this is the same thing, except I'm blindfolded and have earplugs on this time, <laughs> and then I get to I get to listen to how great it is afterwards. So sorry, Sam. <laughs> I, I kid, of course. I, I'm just I'm just excited to see it. Yeah, I'm very excited to see it as well. And I actually I'm kind of grateful that it's coming out in February only because I like that it's spaced out like this December slate is just so busy with movies and I don't want to miss this one in theaters. So I'm grateful to have a, like an opportunity later this year to kind of space it out and give the movie its full due. So uh, nevertheless, I'm very uh, eager to see it, especially considering how taken you were by the film. Absolutely. And as I kind of mentioned earlier, it is still amazing that we have it on as many lists as we do, which sort of tells you like the people who did catch it, almost all of them found a place for it on their list. In fact, it might have made a number one spot. So Julia Tatey, for example, she had it as her number three. Emily Kubinkinek had it as number five. I think they saw the film together, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Chris Evangelista had it as his number seven. Matt Donato had it at number 10. Kaylee Donaldson had it as her number five. And then Kimber Myers had it as her number one film of the year. Love Kimber Myers. And yeah, uh, yeah I great. definitely, when she sent me her list, I, I definitely <laughs> I had a fun little uh, quick conversation with her about the film and, and, and just how uh, both of us really want to see it again already. And uh, I'm probably going to wear out that screener. So, uh, Will, yeah. Sam, if you guys want to watch it, just come on over and we'll check it out together. Yeah, I'll be there. I know where you bit. live, John. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Those were our number four picks. Let's hear from um another cinemaholic uh this is craig hanks host of the legendarium podcast and he picked a film that has already been discussed but not as a film that was on any of our lists but from a recording we heard earlier so let's hear what craig has to say and of course uh yeah i don't know where i was going with that let's hear what craig has to say (laughs) 
Hey, Cinemaholics, it's Craig from the Legendarium Podcast here with the best nerd movies of 2019. Yes, that's right. I'm putting aside Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or Knives Out or whatever else might take the title of actual best movie of 2019 and bringing you a few genre gems from this year. A couple unexpected entries on my list are a little horror comedy called Ready or Not that I thought was an absolute barrel of fun in the vein of Krampus and Brightburn, the anti-Superman movie that takes Zack Snyder's most interesting question, what if God like superheroes existed and what if they weren't our friends and makes it terrifyingly real. Ultimately though, my number one pick goes predictably to Avengers Endgame. Now, this pick is a bit like how Return of the King got 11 Oscars as a reward for the efforts of the entire trilogy. Endgame might not be technically the best movie of the year or even on my list, but it deserves a top spot for Marvel's miracle of having pulled off 11 years of franchise building and capping it off, ha ha ha, with a fun and satisfying ending. And now it's taking every ounce of self-control I have not to spend the next hour explaining away the rest of my ranking. So I'm just going to leave it to you to tear it apart. Happy 2020, Cinemaholics. <laughs> All right. That was Craig from the Legendarium podcast. If you haven't already, definitely check out that show. They have such a wonderful uh, format uh, talking about a, a lot of sci-fi and fantasy novels in particular and uh, great, great uh, companion piece if you want to get uh, a fix uh, in that realm. But yeah, so Craig picked Avengers Endgame, just like Tyler Carlin, and we, we didn't really talk about this much before, but yeah, Avengers Endgame on a lot of other lists. Robert Yanez had it as his number two film. CJ Mellon had it at number four. Brandon Katz, another person who had it as their number one film. Jay Colland and Adonis Gonzalez had it at number three. Matt Serafini had it at number 10. Ethan Edshaw had it at number four. Uh, this is my favorite superhero film of the year. Uh, it's in mm. like my top 20, I believe, if I, if I had to count it down, it's somewhere in there. And honestly, I think it's the only superhero film of the entire year that's even in my honorable mentions at all. Like, I, I don't think I had any other ones. And I, I don't know. How do you feel about that, Will and Sam? I know it's it's not on any of your lists. Uh, I don't even think it's in your honorable mentions. I'm not sure about that. But yeah, superhero films weren't amazing this year, but this one clearly mm. stood out to a lot of other people. Uh, for me, it's a film with diminishing returns, but I respect it all the same. And I, I can see why people are so willing to want to put it on there for reasons that uh, Craig just mentioned. Like it, it is a uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, cumulative film as far as like recognizing all the efforts that went into making this big 11 year franchise come to be. But yeah, not quite one for my honorable mentions, but I can see why it's on people's lists. Yeah, and I know, Sam, you you haven't always been the biggest Marvel enthusiast. I, I know you like some of them, but yeah, hmm. you, you're not their biggest fan. Not always, uh, but Avengers Endgame totally slaps. I love this movie. Uh, it's very high up in my honorable mentions, uh, certainly in my top 20. Uh, my second favorite of the entire MCU, uh, I think, is so thrilling and so rewarding to watch in every way. And I saw it twice, did not get any worse the second time. Uh, and I have no doubt that that would be the same for the third time. Uh, it just simply did not make it onto my top 10 list, but I definitely concur that it's the best uh, comic book superhero movie of uh, of 2019. I have one more, my second favorite, that's in my honorable mentions, but I'll have to mention that one later. Sounds good. And yeah, it's still probably my favorite Marvel Cinematic Universe movie for a lot of the reasons you just mentioned. Yeah, just a really strong hero film. I think maybe last year this could have maybe found its way in my top 10. I'm not sure. 
But yeah, such a, man, what a rewarding film. And I think what Craig says there about uh, the way Return of the King was recognized is definitely a comparison I find pretty compelling since uh, it does sort of feel like, yeah, a lot of that goodwill is stored up, does get spent. And uh, I think in a way that's pretty effective. So that is Avengers Endgame. With that, let's move into our top three films. Sam, your number three pick is the same as Will's number two pick. So we're going to hold correct. off on that one for now. Uh, we're not going to talk about it quite yet. So we're going to go right to you, Will. What is your number three film? So this is a film we've, the three of us have already discussed uh, at least once on the show. And I, I know at the time that I was certainly the most positive on it, but I wasn't quite expecting to be like this level of positive on it at that point in time. But I don't know, the more I thought about this film, uh, and I, I know certainly when I have uh, talked to people and they keep asking me like, Oh, what was your favorite movie of the year? Like, what was your some of your favorite movies of the year? The first one always tends to come up uh, in my mind is Quentin Tarantino's ninth film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's not really to say anything about like the film itself, I think, is better than some of the films he did before or like a tour of force masterpiece, even though I do really enjoy the film. But I think there is something about the film and just the like warmth and the passion and just the like vibe of it that really connected to me in a way that I wasn't even anticipating at the time that I saw it. And it's the one that of the movies that I've ranked on my list, I think it's the one I've thought about the most besides maybe my second pick. And I also think it's the one that I'm, if I were to pick one of these to rewatch right now, I think it would be this one. Just, I, I mean, the performances, the characters in particular, I, I would say, um, even though you called the lighthouse one of the, I think the most quotable movie of the year, I think this might be it for me. Um, and I, I, there's so many individual moments in particular in this film that really stand out to me as some of the best of the year. So yeah, I, I can see why you two had criticisms with it. I don't think it's a perfect film by any stretch of the imagination, but I've really grown to like this movie quite a lot. And I can see that only being something that grows in my estimate, it, it being a film that only grows in my estimation over time. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely still a fan. I, this one's in, yeah, I think probably around like my top 25, which is definitely high up and it's a film that I agree with you. It has a lot of rewatchability factor. I've been wanting to rewatch it, in fact. And yeah, it's not one that I think is as narratively satisfying or as just tense. And it doesn't have that sparkling dialogue that I really appreciate from his best films. Uh, I still am a bigger fan of Hateful Eight, for example. But yeah, this one is for me is like right up there with some just truly great Tarantino films. Uh, like Jackie Brown and maybe not quite as high as Pulp Fiction and Glorious Bastards for me, but, you know, definitely high up there. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad it's it's getting a lot of attention. I was worried because it's a summer release. It was going to get kind of lost in the shuffle of uh, of all the discourse of it. I know a lot of people have a lot of issues with this, but it is a popular film for the Cinemaholics. It shows up on a lot of lists. Uh, Sam, yeah, how are you feeling about this film all of these months later? Uh, I do not like... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I do not like it, Sam I Am. Uh, it, you don't uh, like it in a bus? You don't like I it do not like without it us? In a box? I do not like it with a fox. I do not like it wearing fuzzy socks, uh, so on and so forth. Yeah, uh, I, have not, I have not grown or it has not grown or shrunk in my estimation uh, necessarily, but I still do not like it for reasons that I got into in uh, the episode we recorded over the summer. Um, just in a nutshell, I find it kind of simplistic and immature and uh, I couldn't really get into it, but it is indeed very quotable. So uh, that it, it at least has that going for it. 
Um, but yeah, not for me, but I will not go into detail any further because this is not a place for negativity and I don't know. I don't want to bring anyone down. Well, great to hear from you regardless. And I, I do share a lot of your criticisms. I guess just for me, the good stuff uh, overshadowed some of what you brought up in that episode in particular. And yeah, I, I still still regard the film quite fondly. And obviously, will you do as well? It's on a bunch of other lists. Matt Serafini put it as his number five film of the year. Brandon Katz has it at number three. Chris Evangelista has it pretty high at number two. Charlie Ridgely has it at number eight. Corey Woodruff has it at number six. Aaron Dicer has it as his third favorite film of the year, like you will. And then Candace Frederick um, also has it pretty high up um, as her number two film of the year. Uh, so her and Chris had it the highest at number two. And I think in some ways deservedly so. I think it is a pretty incredible film for what it is. And uh, I am very surprised. Well, I wasn't expecting this one to be in your top five, let alone your top three. So uh, uh, interesting turn of events. Very into it. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Let's get into uh, my third film, uh, my number three film of the year, which is High Life. So this is the one I was alluding to earlier in terms of like the sci-fi film that kind of like, this is a more indie film, obviously very slow and methodical. In fact, Sam, when you were describing Aniara, I was thinking, oh yeah, this is the experience I had with High Life. Uh, this is also another A24 film uh, directed by Claire Denis. And yeah, I talked about this film. I raved about this film months and months ago. One of the first truly great films of the year that I got a chance to watch. And uh, if you don't know the plot, it stars Robert Pattinson as an inmate on this space prison that is careening toward a black hole sort of aimlessly. And we follow him raising this baby in space and we're dropped into their lives without really knowing the context. What, where did this baby come from? Is it his baby? Why is there nobody else on this ship? And then the film from there goes into more detail of like where these characters come from. We meet Julia Pinochet's character, who truly one of the most fascinating yet meditative antagonists slash protagonist characters we've seen in a long time. And this film, uh, very similar to You Were Never Really Here, one of my favorite films of last year, in the sense that it just put me under a spell and I could not shake out of it. And uh, my favorite line of dialogue of the year is the very last couple of words uttered uh, in this movie so truly great. swept me off my feet, high life. And I, I can't believe that it's not on more lists. I'm upset. Um, but it did it did find its way um, to, to one other list. And no, it was not Rebecca Polly. <laughs> um, <laughs> Julia Tatey had it as her number nine film. And... Yeah, I know. Uh, Will, you you did get a chance to see High Life, and I don't think you liked it as much as I did. And then, Sam, you saw it as well. But, Will, yeah, how, how do you feel about High Life sometime later? Um, it's I still definitely like it. I, I think it didn't make my honorable mention, but I think it would put it in my top 40 for the year. Just because, I, as a whole, it didn't hit me as hard as it hit you. But certain moments that really worked for me, and I, I remember feeling like very, very moved by the ending of the film even though I wasn't like blown away by the stuff before it. There's also some stuff at the beginning too. Like there's like one shot in particular that like, I think momentarily like took my breath away just for how gorgeous it is. Um, so I can definitely see why it spoke to you so much. And uh, maybe it's one that if I rewatched it later down the line, I would uh, be in agreement with you as far as your placement here. But uh, for me, yeah, it's not quite, quite that high for me, but I enjoyed all the same. And Sam, I, I see here you sent me a, a message that says, oh, you're moving High Life to your number three film of the year um, because of everything I just said. So that's incredible. <laughs> I, I'm so glad to hear I've, it. 
I thought I told you to keep that a secret, John, <laughs> but apparently, apparently, I kid, hmm. of course. Yes, yes. No, I I dug High Life quite a bit. Uh, this this was just another one that there were just ten movies that I liked more, and uh, unfortunately, I couldn't make it onto my list. So I apologize for that. But yeah, everything that John said, I echo. High Life is awesome. All right, that is High Life, and I think it's available somewhere to stream. I think it's on Prime Video. Uh, so this is an A24 film. So if you can catch it anytime soon, I definitely recommend giving it a chance. I can't guarantee it's going to be everybody's jam necessarily. I think that would be very difficult uh, to quantify. But yeah, if anybody listening uh, wants to give it a shot, I highly recommend they do sooner rather than later. It's definitely worth seeing when you get a chance. All right. Let's get into our number two picks. And this one, we're going to start with you, actually, Will, because this Mm -hmm. was Sam's number three film, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, Tell us about your number Uh, two film, which is another favorite uh, of the Cinemaholics contributors, one that I was really happy to see land for a lot of people. Sure. Yeah. My second pick is Ari Aster, another sophomore film, uh, Ari Aster, sophomore film, Midsummer or Midsummer, however you pronounce this title. Uh, I believe it's Midsummer, right? Uh-huh. So you don't pronounce the A. Well, I think Ari Aster says Midsummer, but it's supposed to be Midsummer. I rhyme it as Midsummer when I rhyme it to people. So, cause that's what I do. Uh, so okay. whatever you want to do. <laughs> I don't know. I I say titles rather interchangeably, so interchangeably. So whatever I guess floats your boat, Midsummer, Midsummer. But um, no matter what, I think it's a really tremendous film. Um, I you know I think I put Hereditary in my number two spot last year, or it was definitely in my top five uh, for last year. I remember, and I I think as time has gone on, I think Hereditary might. Yeah, it was your be- it was your number. Hereditary was your number two. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. So some synergy there but uh yeah i i think hmm. as time has gone on um hereditary might actually be my favorite movie of last year and for me with midsummer he only continues to improve i think his willingness to um you know push himself as a filmmaker allowing himself to um avoid some of the criticisms that he made of his last film while still just making a film that's very much his own and uh willing to showcase his style and his quirky sense of humor and his tremendous work with actors and locations is uh still is just as top notch as ever and i think this movie is one that uh, i have rummaged on quite a bit and i i have only grown to appreciate it and i could see it being my number one pick eventually down the road uh it was certainly one i thought about as far as being my number one pick however i sell for number two and uh, i'm not mad about that at all i think it's a really tremendous film all right and sam it was your number three pick and i i'm so happy to see this i midsummer is one of my honorable mentions for sure it's really high up for me and it was in my top 10 for quite a while i like this so much more than hereditary so we at least agree on how much we like midsummer will i definitely was a bigger mm-hmm. fan of this than hereditary but sam tell us all about what you think of midsummer I also preferred it quite a bit to Hereditary. Um, I found this one much more captivating, uh, how it begins with the gut punch that in Hereditary was kind of placed in the middle, which I think was a very strategic and very effective mood, uh, or move, I should say, um, because it really got me to like snap and pay attention to, oh, stuff is going on with this character. Wait a minute, what is this? And... I love the way that it just pulled me along the entire way and how uh, it sort of sharply diverted from a very dark uh, opening 
into this bright, almost unsettlingly bright setting for the rest of the movie, um, which I know is kind of a strange thing to fixate on, but I think it really lends to the to the atmosphere that Midsummer creates that it maintains all the way throughout. And just the entire last half hour of this movie, I could watch on repeat. It's very little dialogue. It's everything's just culminating into this really shocking, bizarre, and yet somehow intensely satisfying ending that is, is I, I can almost definitively say my favorite ending of any movie this year, uh, except for maybe my number two, which we'll talk about in a second. And I, I love just about everything about it. And I, I was fortunate enough to get to see the uh, director's cut in theaters, which was about a half hour longer. So it came out to three hours in the end. And I think it made it even better. So oh, uh, interesting. If, I have to catch if, that. If you can, yeah, if you can somehow track that down, I don't know if that was released to home video or to streaming or anything, but I would definitely recommend both versions are fantastic. Uh, but the director's cut, it was what made me really realize uh, just how much I love this. And it bumped it up my list significantly upon viewing that second version of the movie. So yeah, loved, love, love Midsummer. Uh, just about everything about it. Right. And I would say this is a technically a horror film, right? Um, uh, Will, this is yeah. the one you rated the highest on your top 10. And Sam, I think there is one other film that you could classify as a horror, at least in some ways that you you put above Midsummer. But maybe we'll talk about that one or the that particular difference or distinction a little bit later. Mm. Uh, really, man, I'm so happy to see Midsummer on so many lists. Kimber Myers had it at number seven. Chris Sheridan had it at number nine. CJ Millen had it at number eight. Chris Evangelista had it at number five. So clearly you guys had it the highest and I think deservedly so. And um, I just want to, because I didn't mention this earlier for whatever reason, Florence Pugh should be in the awards consideration right now. And the fact that she isn't, same as Tony Collette from last year, uh, is just, uh, it just baffles me that she isn't being considered. But she is, gives a, an amazing performance. And once again, can't wait to see where she goes in her career. Yeah, she had an all time great year this year. So yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that at least the critical circles are recognizing it. Well, and she has Black Widow. Let's keep that momentum going. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we talked about this a little bit last week in our conversation about Little Women, that she is, yeah, if not already, she has just completely entered the the arena of like A-list actors, at least. I think she's like right there. I think Black Widow is going to push that even further. And I, I couldn't agree more. This is this is a Florence Pugh's year. We're just living in it. And uh, or we just lived through it. Also, any movie that is as good as it is and also finds a way to incorporate an Austin Powers joke, you just you, you, you're <laughs> just adding gravy to the to the pile. I, I, I can't. That's right. I can't admire it enough. <laughs> That's Midsummer. Will Ashton's number two pick. Now, Sam and I have the exact same number two picks. We're going to talk about it now. One thing about this film is we kind of alluded to this earlier when I was talking about films about class warfare when talking about us. And this film is probably the ultimate realization of that theme <laughs> and uh, extremely well-liked film by the other cinemaholics. In fact, uh, it's the most number one picks, the most number two picks. A lot of people had it as either their number one or number two. And of course, Sam and I had it at number two. I was so close to considering this as my favorite film of the year. But Sam, yeah, yeah let's talk about it. Uh, I didn't make Will's list because I think he he just wants to hurt us uh, emotionally. Yeah, because Will's a maniac. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, boy. Uh, so, Sam, let's <laughs> talk about uh, our number two film, which is Parasite. Let's talk about Parasite. 
It's uh, fantastic in literally every possible way, and I've seen it three times, and I can see no flaw with this movie. Uh, It is um, the most exciting movie I've seen in years. The most uh, just suspenseful and thrilling and weirdly like hilarious movies it's a black comedy but also a thriller it is pitch black comedy uh and just a perfectly taut thriller um and i'm i'm at a loss for words just because of how much is in this movie and this is of course the the other movie i was alluding to that is in contention with midsummer for my favorite ending it's Yeah. yeah gives me chills and tears and 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 shivers and all sorts of other things just thinking about it i know i know it's kind of contentious too i'm on the side of the ending is perfect and i know some people yeah. disagree with that but i i have no criticisms i'll set it up a little bit because i know this film has been talked about quite a bit it'll be difficult for you and i to really say a lot of things that are new about parasite uh it's yeah. definitely one of the more critically uh universally loved films but uh, of this year this is from Bong Joon-ho, of course, who I haven't really loved Bong Joon-ho films since Snowpiercer. Uh, Okja mm. just didn't quite land with me as easily. And this one, though, is just, I think, his masterpiece uh, by my estimation and a lot of other people. Yeah, this is next level. This and Host, uh, I think, are the two that people will cite for years to come as his two best films. And I mm. think the reason for that in part is this cast. This cast is just easily my favorite ensemble of the year. Um, by a large margin, uh, Song Kang Ho, Lee Soon Kin, Cho Ying Jung, Choi Woo Sik, Park So Dam. Like these are not household names in America, but my goodness, if you're looking at South Korean film, the, these are people. This is like a, an incredible, uh, incredibly well casted picture with just so many talented people. Of course, Bong Joon Ho is uh, really kind of his mu- uh, muse in Song Kang Ho, and yeah. Very, very happy to see him have a lead role in here that is just so rewarding to his talent as an actor. And yeah, you, you said a lot of it, but yeah, this this film is about, again, like us, the forgotten people in society and how they get by. But while Us was ultimately kind of a pessimistic film for the most part, Parasite is also deeply cynical, but it, it's also so alive. Like this film yeah. shows the tenacity and the can-do-it attitude of these really like just inventive like think of how weirdly uh clever and almost over the like because it's a film the exaggerated quality of the cleverness of kevin McAllister in the home alone movies and just add <laughs> that to like five people or four people and you have yeah. the main cast of parasite and the thing i like most about this film is that as political as it is it doesn't make easy villains out of anyone everyone is sympathetic no. everyone has their own set of motivations that make sense that are easy to follow and even though when the ultimate consequences come for many of these characters you never take it for granted that this is happening from people who are doing what they have to do and with and it does that without the film having to make anybody cartoonishly evil so that you buy into it it doesn't ruin the sympathy you have for the characters and i don't think this film does get praise enough for i know people love the setting and they love how well or orchestrated the location is but man when it comes down to this character work this film reaches such a high bar and it's one of those films where you watch it and you're like i'm watching something special right now because so few films can pull off something this wildly entertaining but also something that's so deep and meaningful at the same time yeah it it takes the um what's the word uh discrepancy 
between in quote unquote the haves and the have nots and it manages to like simultaneously show us how how stark of a divide that is while also acknowledging that it's the way that life is almost everywhere and by just putting it into sharp relief uh it really it really gives a powerful undercurrent of just societal injustice to this movie um i think there's one element in particular that that sort of uh that sort of crops up throughout the movie it's a motif involving uh let's just say the scent of the poor that just takes on more meaning to me every and single what time what a payoff my goodness Oh my goodness. Yeah. It, the the way that this movie pays off, it pays off for like 20 solid minutes and it's some of the best 20 minutes of of all of 2019. Parasite is fantastic and it could it, I could switch it with my number 1 and I would have no problem with it. Uh for whatever Same it's here. worth. Yeah, yeah, for whatever it's worth, I happen to know that it is my brother Producer Den's number 1 movie of the year. So make sure to add that into the list, John. Producer Den's number 1 is Parasite, none other than Bong Joon Ho's uh, newest classic, and I hope I think this is, this one is going to significantly stand the test of time. We're going to be talking about this movie for a long, long time. It uh, it would be easier for me to say which list this isn't on. Um, honestly, it's on almost <laughs> all of them. Uh, almost everyone picked it for yeah. some spot, mostly ones and twos. But yeah, so a few people like Matt Serafini had it as number six, Kaylee Donaldson, number four. Uh, in fact, I should just say who had it as their number one, Rebecca Polly. Uh, maybe, maybe Sam, that's a sign that you should change it to number one. I don't know. Maybe so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, also uh, Candace Frederick, her number one film of the year, Julia Tatey's number one film of the Ooh. year, and May Abdul-Baki's number one film of the year. And yeah, like you said, very close to being mine. Uh, and oh, I got a, a text message from Will Ashton and he just ah, said, yes. Oh, I'm not, I'm not putting parasite on my top 10 deal with it. Uh, <laughs> oh, Hey, Will, I see your, your I don't, I don't know if that's a joke or not, but I believe <laughs> it either way. No, it's funny to say it. Cause I mean, I have been, it's one, there's at least three movies that I heavily debated whether or not to put in here. And uh, parasite was one of them. And hearing you guys talk about it definitely maybe it's like, maybe I should have put it in there. I don't know. I really did enjoy the film a lot. And I, I, I've been a big Bong Joon-ho fan since uh, the host. And unlike John, I've really enjoyed all of his films since then. But yeah, I mean, parasite it's easy to see why this is his like biggest critical darling and commercial success. Uh, and, um, I'm hoping that he gets some major award consideration. I, I mean, he has already, but I mean, talking about like the Oscars and whatnot, I, I could see it right, being yeah. one of the, the rare, uh, few foreign language films to get best picture nomination and it seems, you know, I think most people would say deservedly. So I would say, yeah, it's peachy keen. And I would say that, well, unlike last year, I think you have so many strong films on your list that I'm not that disappointed. I think that you, you have such good films. I can see your struggle, um, because <laughs> it, I know like we we didn't really get into this we talked more about this last year but we all choose these films in different ways it's all extremely arbitrary but when it comes right. down to it we tend to pick the films that i know you talked about this last year but the films that really hit you in a personal way and i'm a little bit different like i factor that in uh to some extent but i i just have different criteria like i tend to pick films that i usually think like outside of myself a little bit or like i'm thinking about is this film more important and you usually look at like, does this film really do anything original or unique and something way that lands with you? I don't want to, you know, say things for you or anything like that. Sure. But, uh, and Sam, maybe you can, what's your opportunity since we're winding down to our number ones 
here in a second. Uh, yeah, how do you, how do you pick your films? Like, is there a, a criteria that you've sort of like grabbed onto, or is it maybe it's more of a gut feeling? What do you think? It's definitely more of a gut feeling. Um, on Letterboxd, I've uh, starting with this year, twenty nineteen, or I guess last year, uh, as we speak. Um, I've been keeping like a running list of just everything that I've seen. Uh, every time I see something, I just put it in the list. I, I figure out like the star rating I gave it, figure out roughly where in the list it'll place. And from there, it's just kind of, all right, I liked it a little more than this, a little less than that. And I sort of hone in on it. Um, but really at the end of the day, uh, it is very arbitrary. And I was, I was saying before this, how I considered changing the order on some of my list, but, uh, Really what matters is that they were great and they made it onto my list and that's really all that matters. So I'm glad I got a chance to talk about each and every one of these uh, and as well as some others that we've encountered along the way. So yeah, certainly certainly no uh, particular rhyme or reason to it, uh, but that's kind of how I approach it. All right. Well, let's with that get into our last audio recording. This is from Aaron Dicer of the Sif Pop podcast, and he picked a film as his number one that you've heard a little bit about it already, and very fitting that it'll come here because it's definitely a Cinemaholics favorite, even though it's not on any of our lists between me and Will and Sam. So here's what Aaron has to say about his favorite film of 2019. Hey, Cinemaholics crew, it's Aaron Dicer from Sift Pop, which you can find at siftpop.com or by searching for Sift Pop, S-I-F-T-P-O-P in your podcast player. Now that the plugs are out of the way, let's talk about the best movie of the year. It is Knives Out, in my opinion. Uh, this movie is so much fun. When you make a whodunit uh, and you make it well, like I believe that Ryan Johnson has done here, you have to be very intricate with the way that you use your plot. Perfectly intricate. What's amazing about this movie as a whodunit is it... It's not only perfectly intricate in its plot, it's perfectly intricate in its metaphor, in its themes, in its message. It is perfectly intricate as a movie, and that is the next level, and that's why it ascends to my top. That, plus, of course, all the amazing performances, Michael Shannon, Christopher Plummer, Lakeith Stanfield, Don Johnson, Jamie Lee Curtis, Daniel Craig, talking about donut holes, Chris Evans, Anna DeArmas, uh, Tony Collette, I mean, it just keeps going going on what a fun movie uh what a great movie and that's why it's my number one all right that was aaron dicer talking about knives out and yeah we talked about this already a little bit but yeah what what a film and what is what a great thing to see it hit so many people's top tens and some people's number ones so uh great to see that and with that let's get into our number one picks we're each going to first say our honorable mentions as we've sort of been picking at them this entire time. But uh, yeah, Sam, we'll start with you. What are your honorable mentions? And then let's lead that into your number one film of 2019. Yeah, my honorable mentions list is pretty much just my like entire top 50 of the year I could honorably mention. Um, but I just want to give a shout out to the ones that we haven't touched upon on the way. Uh, and these are in no particular numerical order. These are just sort of how I came across them on my list. Uh, starting with Shazam, that was the other superhero movie I was talking about. Uh, that was my second favorite comic book movie of the year. Really dug Shazam. Just yeah, couldn't find it. Uh, well, it made a few it. lists, actually. It was not, uh, it was not forgotten. 
gotten. It was not unrecognized, and I'm glad to see it because this is I, I like where the DC universe is at right now. So let's hope they can keep this train rolling along. Um, another one that I really liked and just couldn't find room for is Gloria Bell, a movie that came out the same week as Captain Marvel. Uh, so it kind of got overshadowed, um, but maybe it would have anyway. Regardless, it's really great. One of Julianne Moore's best of recent memory. Uh, another one that I really like for a lot of the same reasons, weirdly enough. Uh, and I was the only one that loved the hell out of Where'd You Go, Bernadette. Uh, so that I liked one, it. That one is certainly my cup of tea. So, and I love drinking it the whole way. Uh, the first movie I reviewed for uh, Cinemaholics website was Arctic, starring Mads Mikkelsen. Seek that out if you haven't. It's really it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, same thing with Crawl, the alligator movie. That's I don't know why one. that one didn't get didn't didn't get more recognition just for the fun factor. It's a really good creature feature. Uh, the Art of Self Defense is a really really solid uh, character piece. Agreed. Can't believe it's not even in my honorable mentions, but that's how good this year is. And I, even though I dug it so much, it was a really good year. That was, and this was uh, certainly a highlight along the way. Um, a movie that, uh, like Klaus, is an animated movie released to Netflix, which that combined with uh, The Irishman, another one of my honorable mentions, and uh, a movie that both of y'all are about to talk about. It it showed me that Netflix is kind of like low-key stepping up their game in recent months uh, because they released an animated movie not long ago called I Lost My Body, which is really strange, but in a really fascinating way. Yeah. Uh, it kind of it's it's about a severed hand that sort of like is wandering around the city at the same time as a more traditional story of trying to just of uh, this person just trying to make their way in the world. It's happening at the same time. I think it kind of shoots itself in the foot, or perhaps the hand at the end uh, when it kind of makes the metaphor literal, but whatever works it's it's striking regardless uh like really like that one another netflix movie is unicorn store which love it i know john and i are fans of so uh just want to give that a little shout out uh a movie that i know you did not love john was blinded by the light which i think is sheer <sighs> joy uh. don't ooh at me john this is joyous and exciting and really infectious and inspirational and i really liked it um a movie that I just saw recently, and I'm glad I did because it had a very small release, was The Aeronauts, uh, which is really exciting in in just a in a really classical way. So I like watching that. Uh, Charlie Says is a movie that I actually wrote an article about earlier this year, ranking all the Manson movies, and this I think is the best by far. It's an angle of the story that no other movie has ever touched upon. So seek that out if you can. It's called Charlie Says. Uh, I forget if I said that or not. Yeah, um, it's a good one. Hustlers, Hustlers, I loved. The Irishman, I liked. Uh, Book Smart, I was so disappointed that this didn't make it onto my list. It was in my top 10 for so long and just got pushed out. Uh, there were just that many good things. Same with Wild Rose. We reviewed that with uh, Julia Tatey earlier this year and so, so upset that that didn't make it either. Uh, Peanut Butter Falcon never quite made it onto my top 10 list, but I loved it nonetheless. Same with Dark Waters. Uh, which I which I found very informative and very interesting. Uh, Honey Boy is a movie that I didn't love, but I liked very much. Uh, John Wick Three is exciting as all hell. Toy Story Four is a really impressive uh, is a really impressive continuation of the Toy Story uh, story, for lack of a better word. That I was I was very impressed by. It didn't blow my mind uh, as it did with a few others, but regardless, it's quite good. 
And then just two movies that really got uh, kind of a small release was this movie called Chained for Life, which it would take too long to get into it, but it's really unique and really interesting. So check that one out. And uh, same thing goes for a movie called Give Me Liberty, which is uh, really exciting and really stressful, not quite in an uncut gems way, but just in a really uh, in a really gripping way that makes the catharsis that much more powerful. And finally, I don't care what either of you say, Frozen 2 is a really mature and nuanced movie uh, that I was not expecting. Don't uh, at me, John. I will be having none of this. Frozen 2 is awesome. It made like two lists and I still can't believe it. But yeah, those are my honorable mentions. Uh, and finally, after much delay, uh, my number one is, I said that Parasite... Um, was possibly my number one. That was a movie that had gotten so much buildup beforehand um, that I sort of, I didn't, I didn't know what I was getting into while watching it because how could I, but it really, it really took me off my feet. The Nightingale hit me like a brick wall out of nowhere and completely obliterated all my internal organs and broke every bone in my body. And I still have not completely recovered. It is the, a uh, second feature film by director Jennifer Kent, who you may remember as a director of The Babadook in 2014, and finally got to make another movie, uh, which is set in the Tasmanian outback in, if memory serves, I want to make sure I get this right, the mid-19th century or perhaps early 19th century? Uh, yes, in 1825 is when it takes place, and... Uh, what happens is that there is this woman, Claire, an Irish convict, uh, sort of under the, under the umbrella of the armed forces who are occupying the area and just experiences the worst possible thing you could ever imagine. And it, the movie starts with that. And it never really dwindles down from there because from there it goes into this journey of just pure rage and uh and uh what's the word vengeance of the kind that i've never been this invested in i like i've never been this invested in like a revenge movie uh even kill bill which i which is still one of my favorite movies of all time but i was not this into it it was to the point where i saw this movie at uh at an alamo draft house not the one i work at but a different one and you can sort of like order food there from a restaurant i ordered a drink and then i forgot to order food because i was that into the movie i could not even fathom what it would be like to engage in the spoils of civilization while watching this it is uh devastating in a way that uh no other movie i've ever seen is and i have not stopped thinking about it not a day goes by that i don't think about this movie and it is available on hulu i recommend that that you make sure you're in for it beforehand because it will destroy you it destroyed me and i think i don't want to speak for either of you but i know that i I happen to know that both of you liked it very much so i'm glad that we're at least sort of on the same page with this one yeah yeah it's uh not quite in my honorable mentions but very close and i'm actually kind of shocked it's not on more lists Uh, kaylee donaldson had it as her number 10 and yeah so strange because i i would have expected a little bit more of a showing jennifer kent is just what a what a truly incredible filmmaker so yeah Yeah. what about what about you will oh for sure yeah this was in my top 20 another film that um i debated putting in my top 10 didn't quite make it but 
Uh, not for lack of trying, because similar to Sam, it, it really took me back. And, uh, and once again, I'm blown away by Jennifer Kent's filmmaking capabilities and uh, her willingness to push bounds and make something that is uh, very much uh, willing to test its audience, but also allow them a, you know, a chance to see her vision in such a uh, unflinching yet uh painstakingly beautiful way towards the end uh the last scene in particular really struck me i think is one of the most beautiful scenes of the year so uh yeah i can't uh, say enough good things about the film it is unforgivingly hopeless uh and i love just how unwilling it is to to show any bright side and there's there's a there's a conviction to that that I can't help but admire. It is I can I can't even imagine what it would be like to try to watch it again, knowing what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But uh, I I honestly don't think I need to. It's utterly fantastic, and it's my number one certainly. Conviction is a good word. Yeah, yeah it's uh, in 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 every sense of the word conviction. All right, that's the Nightingale. And yeah, available on Hulu. Definitely worth seeking out. But yeah, definitely be prepared because the subject matter is oh, yeah. incredibly harrowing and <laughs> yeah a lot of a lot of walkouts a lot of uh yeah you're are you laughing i mean yeah it's the only thing you can do in this situation john is just try to stave <sighs> off yikes the horror to to quote uh marlon brando from apocalypse now just the horror of it all and it and listen i will this is the last thing i'll say uh if it's too much for you totally get it yeah i will not i will not hold anything against that it is it's a lot yeah i mean i would say maybe read a few details about the film before you see it if you feel it might be a little too much but if you can handle it definitely yeah. would recommend checking it out mm-hmm. all right and with that it's time to talk about will's number one film which is actually my number nine films so oh yes bringing it full circle yeah yeah so we're on a slightly different ends of this but yeah will take us through what are some of your honorable mentions and then let's talk about your favorite film of 2019 Sure. Yeah. Um. Just going off of some of the ones we mentioned already: the farewell, parasite, knives out, the artist self defense, which I didn't get a chance to say. That might be if it's not in my top five. Certainly, um, easily one of my favorite comedies of the year. Um. Let's see. Nightingale, Loose, One Cut of the Dead. Um. Anything else that didn't get mentioned yet? Oh, and Waves. But other than that, um, I also want to make sure to mention The Irishman, which I'm surprised hasn't come up yet. Uh, very, very close to getting my top 10, just narrowly uh, itched out, but uh, wanted to make sure I, rec- or I um, recognized it. Uh, Ashes Pierce White, El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie, mm. Homecoming, a film by Beyonce, Loose, which is not um, to be confused with Loose. Uh, this is L-U-Z. Uh, <laughs> definitely recommend that form, that film. <laughs> Um, though I have, like I said, Loose is also my, my honorable mention. So it's a little confusing. Uh, The Souvenir, which is a film, I guess I ultimately liked a little bit more than you, John. I don't know where you stood on that one, Sam, but, um, I, I was quite taken uh, by it. Was it was quite good. I dug it. Yeah. Um, where, what else? Uh, Paddleton, Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror, Dragged Across Concrete, Under the Silver Lake, Her Smell, uh, John Wick Chapter 3, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, Two Popes. Little Women, and then um, one that's like an honorable honorable mention because I don't think this actually came out outside of film festivals, but a documentary I saw and really liked was called Our Time Machine. I uh, would highly recommend that one as well. And then uh, for my number one pick, I got to go with Noah Baumbach's latest film, Marriage Story, which uh, has been an unexpected source of a lot of memes on the interwebs uh, to the point where I think 
people uh, are maybe not giving the movie its full due and uh, I guess expecting something else from it. But for me, when I saw it, this was the one that uh, really just represented everything I love about going to the movies in that uh, it was a film so wrestling with life, very personal, very sincere, very open, yet also very funny and also emotionally touching uh, with two performances that I thought really impacted me in a major way. And I, I think we've seen Adam Driver do a lot of great work. Uh, this might be his best performance yet, which is saying something. And then Scarlett Johansson, the same thing. I will, although um, I go back and forth on whether that it's his performance or um, Under the Skin, which one of my favorite movies of the decade for sure. So uh, I think she has done a lot of good work as well. But yeah, this movie is one that uh, I think it just really resonated with me in a way that it felt like the type of films that are becoming more and more rare. And I'm glad that Netflix took the chance to fund this and distribute it. Uh, even though it's mostly not getting a theatrical release, I think it's one that uh, however you see it, it, it just touches you in a very uh, deep way, just based on how relatable and sincere yet uh, individual and personal to, know bomb back it is and that's what i love about movies is that you can feel like you get an experience that feels very central and personal to a filmmaker yet can be relatable and universal in a way that everyone can relate to in some way or another so for me it made it uh, a fairly easy choice for my number one film of the year yeah this was the one i i was a little surprised to see you had it so high but definitely definitely not disappointed yeah it's my number nine film i i definitely think about this film quite often uh despite having seen it a while ago and uh in particular i think one of the scenes that stood out to me the most was the sondheim musical number where adam driver belts out being alive a, a song i didn't know super well before i had heard it obviously but since watching the film i've listened to it i don't too many times to count and uh I think that is one of the best chosen songs for a musical number in a film I've seen in a while. And we've talked about Mary's Story on the show. We've talked about Noah Baumbach a lot on this show. I'm looking at past decade, Baumbach has made some of my favorite films of the decade between Francis Ha and, of course, this. I really liked Meyerowitz stories, loved when we were, when we we're young. And with this film, mm. I'm just blown away by how he continues to just surprise me with how how he makes it look easy making films about <laughs> where he's the stand-in and yet yeah. i have nothing to relate with this guy like if you look at noah right. bombach's life like he's this new york hipster before hipsters were really a thing in the sense that we understand them and his problems they're like it's like that joke on his trailers once made about aziz ansari and modern romance of like it's a show about problems that only aziz ansari has and in a sense you could like if you were like being kind of nitpicky you could throw that at this film as well but just this this filmmaker has such a knack for writing stories in a way where you understand that what he's going through is something that we do too as well i've never gone through a divorce but watching this movie i still felt in it and i i definitely was moved not just by the performances as you've already uh, definitely mentioned, but the score by Randy Newman, we can't say enough, is uh, oh, yeah. perfectly complementary to the story and the purpose that it serves. And some of my favorite funny moments of the year oh, as sure. well, a uh, fantastic set piece with uh, Adam Driver that uh, I will not soon forget and recommend mm-hmm. to people. Sam, I'm curious, uh, Was this, this movie did not make your honorable mentions. And uh, is it one that I don't even know if you've caught it or what you think about it? Uh, actually, it did make my honorable mentions. I actually just didn't mention it in the interest of preserving ah, the surprise. I, see. I thought um, I thought we were going to find out. It's like, well, guys, it's the worst movie of 2019. And I- hmm. No, no, not even close. Matter of fact, I think it's my number 13 or 14 last time I checked. Just barely oh, wow. missed out on my list. 
I, I really, really loved it. I did manage to catch it in a theater, in fact. Uh, it's And it's still playing at this theater, so that's good on them, uh, this, uh, this theater near me, for, for preserving the theatrical experience when no one else will. Uh, yeah, full disclosure, my, my parents are divorced, so this really spoke to me a lot. Um, one scene in particular, which takes place in a courtroom where the lawyers representing, uh, the, the divorcing couple sort of bring up earlier scenes, uh, specifically these really arbitrary lines and moments, uh, one involving a car seat, one involving like just the two of them walking up the stairs and manages to twist it into this accusatory stance of why the other is wrong and they're right. And that is, that is truly what it, what it is like. Um, so I really, really, really love marriage story. Just sadly, not enough to make it onto my top 10. Did you say my romance instead of master of none for the Zizanzari thing? Oh, I did. <laughs> I was thinking of his uh, book, huh? Right. Just, just to clarify. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's Marriage Story. Uh, showed up on a lot of lists. Uh, this one was on 12 other lists. We won't go through all of them, but yeah, a lot of other people had great things to say. And Will, you had it. You were the one who had the highest. The only person who had it number one. Uh, no one had it at number two. I think the next highest was Robert Yanez and Emily Kumikinek. They both had it as their number three film. All right, and I'm last to go uh, in terms of my honorable mentions. Yeah, a lot of stuff that's been mentioned already. The The film that just barely missed was Wild Rose, as you brought up in particular. Sam was close for you as well. Wild Rose was my number 11, <laughs> and it mm. just barely gave way. As soon as I saw Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I, I, I wept because I knew <laughs> the film <laughs> that I'd have to push down. And then the two other films I had to push down uh, over the course of the last couple months was Midsummer, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, uh, Knives Out, Jojo Rabbit, Avengers Endgame, Pain and Glory. Th- those were Oh, I out. forgot to mention Pain and Glory. That yeah, movie yeah, yeah. is awesome. I'm hoping to see it this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. In a theater, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, this was mentioned already, but uh, Horror Noir, uh, one of the documentaries that uh, I did manage to catch and really love, and uh, that's on Shudder. Uh, Book Smart has been has been brought up once upon a time in Hollywood. I lost my body. Uh, the Netflix film you brought up, Sam. So glad you did because this film, my second favorite animated film of the year, and I'm glad that you you were a little coy with the details because it it is a film to be watched without knowing too much. I, I'm really excited for Will for you to see it pretty soon. Little Women, yeah. a film that made a lot of top ten lists. Uh, just honorable mentions for me and you guys, and I, I, I definitely really dug this film a lot, and I, it just, yeah, one of those years where there were so many other things that are just at the forefront of my mind, but I'm so excited about Greta Gorig's trajectory as a storyteller, and I sometimes I wonder if maybe this should be a little higher on my list. I, I do like it a lot. Paddleton, which I just, man, but what a great Netflix film. Uncut Gems, mm-hmm. as we talked about. Her Smell, which I just saw recently, uh, echo nice. a lot of uh, what Will's, the nice thing Will said about, has said about it in the past. The Report, which for a while was like my favorite film of the year. It was in my top 10 for a really long time. But as I just kept watching all these films, 
the report kept falling by the wayside. But mm. yeah, still got love. It was a general outlier for one of our other contributors, uh, Chris Evangelista. Toy Story 4, John Wick 3, we've talked about these. One Cut of the Dead, The Two Popes, uh, which is the other Netflix film competing for a lot of awards. Yeah, just Two Popes. We didn't talk about it much, but uh, definitely a very solid Netflix film. And I, I definitely really enjoyed how surprising it was. It wasn't just Dinner with Andre, right? So we, I remember talking about that <laughs> about a month back and a great conversation uh, around that movie. And then Honey Boy, which just grows in my estimation the more I think about it. The Shia LaBeouf film where he plays his own father, uh, just another one of those films. Director Omar Harrell could have easily done just mishandled this, but she absolutely nailed the tone and the balance it was going for. And then last couple of films, I want to shout out to the stars, not to be confused with Ad Astra, but Hmm. this wonderful black and white film that's worth seeking out. As soon as it hits streaming, I've been waiting to rewatch it, but yeah, it hit the festival circuit and just this Oklahoma, just small town sort of like romantic film that uh, it is really more about coming of age. It's kind of like book smart for film nerds. Uh, even though I know mm. Booksmart was already for film nerds, but for the film <laughs> nerds who are a little bit more pretentious, To the Stars will be a fun one to watch. And then I was going to say, um, To the Stars, you hear they're possibly releasing that in color when it comes out. There is a color version, yeah. The director mentioned yeah. that, and I hope that's not the case because I absolutely loved that it was a black and white uh, right. style. So I heard that rumor, and I just wasn't sure if that was the truth or what you felt about that. I heard it as well, but I haven't I haven't heard any confirmation to be uh, okay. to be sure. Uh, and then also Light from Light, uh, this one, it's probably better known for having Jim Gaffigan in it, but it's so much more than that. Uh, it's a wonderfully small little indie film about uh, the supernatural and wonderful lead performance, uh, another one we're seeking out. And then last, Mike Wallace is here, uh, definitely one of my favorite documentaries of the year, So such an inventive format documenting this uh, famous interviewer. And just the way that he revolutionized the way that interviews are handled on uh, 60 Minutes and cable news and so forth. Uh, Great, great documentary we're checking out. And with that, those are my honorable mentions. Time to talk about my favorite film of the year. And I've already talked about this film quite a bit. That's The Last Black Man in San Francisco from Joe Talbot uh, in his debut film. And uh, obviously, as you can imagine, my my favorite debut film of the year. And uh, we didn't have a lot of debut films on any of these lists. Uh, A lot of sophomore films, as Will kind of mentioned, and a lot of films from seasoned filmmakers as well, you know, between Parasite and 1917. But with Last Black Man in San Francisco, uh, very personal story. Uh, This is a story from Joe Talbot, but also from its main lead, and that's Jimmy Fails. Uh, And I have to mention, Jimmy Fails and Jonathan Majors have a dual performance in this that just blew me away and part of it is the fact that yes i do live in the bay area uh i don't live in san francisco anymore and Mm. part of the reason i don't live in san francisco anymore ties into the theme of this movie which is the gentrification happening in that city is absolutely tragic and even though i'm somebody who i suppose i could try to afford living there and i wouldn't want to use my money to live there i want the people who live there to be the ones who built homes there who have been there or their families have been there for generations and there are people like me who are transplants from the east coast or from wherever who come here for work and because they want to live on the west coast and it's driving out these people in in part and not to be not that all of us are to blame uh fully but one of the realities of gentrification is that there are a lot of causes and it ties into what we were talking about before with us and with Parasite of like, for me, having this job that I really like and living in this place that I love, 
there is a human cost to it. And films like this show you that cost, but they do it in a way that really makes you empathize. It doesn't attack. It brings together. And that's such a cliche thing to say because people always want to say like, oh, my, my jobs, I just, I want to bring people together. But this is one of those films that actually does it effectively. And it actually has a conversation as its centerpiece moment. I would consider one of the climaxes of the film, but <laughs> uh, this conversation Jimmy fails his character has with this person on a bus who just doesn't understand what it means <laughs> to love the, or to love the place that you hate. And the idea yeah. that you can't hate a place or unless you really love it and recognizing the difference between people who come here and people who live here. And that was my favorite scene of the year, uh, easily my favorite film of the year, though Parasite comes close to it. And their film is talking a lot about a lot of the same things. This is a double feature I would highly <laughs> recommend because you start with Parasite and man, that movie is so much fun, but and it barrels you with all of its creative insights. The Last Black Man in, uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco floors you emotionally, but also visually and thematically. Uh, the opening scene, favorite opening scene of the entire year just the way it washed over me and, and how it shows you the toil that it takes for this main character to get to this house that represents his childhood. I could talk about this movie all day, all night, and all my life. And <laughs> I won't because I don't think everyone wants to hear me do that. Uh, I think suffice to say, it's, it's a truly special film that holds a really deep place in my heart. Uh, even though there are other films on these lists that Maybe I found them funnier, or maybe I thought they were more exciting on a spectacle level. Uh, no, no other film actually made me think and feel as much as this one did. And I know, Will, you 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 hate this movie with all of your heart, and it's a big reason why we're enemies. And no, nah, of course I joke. Yeah, it's just it's... in my honorable mentions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I know you like the film, and then... Um, uh, Sam, I, I, I don't remember. Did, did you include that one in your honorable mentions? I feel like the honorable mentions police right now. So I apologize. Uh, yes, no. And rightfully so. Uh, the last black man in San Francisco, I can tell you for a fact, uh, should be in my top 10 list. Matter of fact, it's my number 11, uh, on the website. Um, I, I simply, there were other things that I wanted to talk about a little bit more and that have held a little bit more of a prominent place in my mind, but I think this is the one that I will keep thinking about. Um, one thing you didn't mention is that we saw this together, John. At this I just, I don't want people to know that. I'm just kidding. We were front row. Right. That's right. Front row. It took us like an hour to get into the building and yeah. we were just completely like loaded to the ceiling with everyone who was so excited to see it was us. in it was in san francisco that's why in san francisco there was this dude wailing on a piano up on the stage for like for like yeah. 30 minutes it was insane and then after the and then before the movie came out or before the movie started danny glover walked out on stage and i didn't know that was gonna happen and yeah. it completely blew my mind and then after it was over they had like like a gospel singer come out and and just belt out the uh one of the central theme songs of the movie it was a magical experience for a magical movie it's it is very uh melancholy and mysterious and has kind of an unusual sense of um sense of tone and pacing that uh 
was was not necessarily off-putting at first but was just i had to get used to it but then the second i was i was i was there for the long haul so much so that i saw it again once i got back to once i got back to my home state uh and it was just as good if not better it is really fantastic it is one that i hope like like all of these but this one especially one that i hope gains an audience yeah uh and gets at least some awards consideration i think that'll certainly that'll certainly help if it gets if it gets something along those lines uh it's it's great it is utterly great and i loved it and i and i uh i have nothing bad to say about it so yeah last black man in san francisco is tremendous uh couldn't agree more yeah framed on my wall uh, i'm looking at it right now is the uh poem that they handed out to us (laughs) yeah the they I have it on my wall too. It's just yeah. that framed. That's awesome. It's uh yeah, it's the poem that the singer you mentioned sang out loud. It's it's sung in the movie as well. And I'm just wondering, she was like, how could Will not have this in his top ten? Like, isn't that weird? Like, I guess uh I don't know. I don't I don't know how I feel yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Sorry, me <well>. neither. <laughs> it's because he didn't watch it with us. I Maybe think so. what it is. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe one day will. Yeah, I'm very curious. <laughs> one day Will and I will watch a movie together. Never never happened. But uh, uh, I, I hope that movie's incredible, like the sequel to Penguins. Penguins. <laughs> yeah. How perfect that would was, that be? That was the most <laughs> random joke of this entire episode. Penguins of Madagascar 2. Yeah. <laughs> In through the doors <laughs> comes John Negroni and Will Ashton. <laughs> Together at last. That's brilliant. All right. That was my number one film, Lost Black Man in San Francisco. I was really hard to see. It was on a good number of lists as well as on seven total, including mine. May Abdulbaki had it as her number eight. Julia Tatey had it as her number seven. Corey Woodruff had it as his number five. Charlie Ridgely had it as his number two, so the second highest. And then last, Preeti Chibber had it as her number eight. All right, those are our top 10 films of the year. Let's finish things out. Uh, Quickly, we're going to say the general outliers. These were films that were only mentioned by one person. We mentioned Sam's. uh, He had This Changes Everything, The Beach Bum, and Slut in a Good Way. Uh, May Abdulbaki had Little Woods, very good film uh, in her uh, top 10 list. Uh, Nobody else had Little Woods. Same thing, Kimber Myers had High Flying Bird, great Netflix movie. Chris Sheridan had Under the Silver Lake, Dragged Across Concrete, The Fair, and The Velocipaster. And he was the one I was referring to before. Chris Sheridan had the most amount of outliers that nobody else had. And uh, surprise, not me, considering The Velocipaster on there. Robert Yanez Jr. had It Chapter 2. I was surprised to see he had high esteem for that. Craig Hanks, he mentioned this, uh, Brightburn. Uh, and Glass were two of his outliers. He also had Jumanji The Next Level, which befuddled Will Ashton to no end, of course. <laughs> Aaron Dicer had The Two Popes, uh, as we've talked about a little bit. Julia Tatey had Atlantics, uh, the Netflix film, which uh, I was surprised wasn't on any other top 10 list. I know people really liked that one and uh, were championing it. But yeah, strong year. Candace Frederick had Tell Me Who I Am and Greener Grass. Uh, Greener Grass, such a bizarre, absurd comedy. Absolutely love it. Uh, I wish I could have found a place for it. CJ Mellon mentioned his number one film, uh, which uh, this is the only number one film uh, that was an outlier, except for Chris Sheridan. So Chris Sheridan's Under the Silver Lake was an outlier. CJ Mellon's Fighting With My Family was an outlier as well. So those two, uh, they, their favorite films were 
were, were definitely ones that were very personal to them. Let's put it that way. And then CJ also had Always Be My Maybe, uh, probably my favorite romantic comedy of the year. Uh, such a great little Netflix gem. Uh, the Wandering Earth, as we mentioned, was another one of his outliers. Uh, Chris Evangelista had The Report, as we talked about, as an outlier. Pretty Chibber had a lot of outliers, but um, a lot of them were like TV shows. One of them that was a movie was Little, which I was surprised yeah. to see. Mm-hmm. I, would, I did not expect Little or even think right. about Little, considering the best films of the year. And uh, Ryan Oliver had In Fabric, which you talked about pretty recently, mm-hmm. Will, and Black Mother and Queen and Slim. Uh, Rebecca Polly had Honeyland, still meaning to see that. Uh, Matt Donato had Tigers Are Not Afraid. Great Shutter film. I really like that one. Wild Rose. Yeah, the only person who had Wild Rose, which I, baffles me. I can't believe it. Uh, mm-hmm. As somebody who didn't have Wild Rose on their top 10. <laughs> and uh, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, which I was surprised to see that okay. as well. I wasn't expecting that. Uh, hmm. Kaylee Donaldson had Transit, which I really like Transit. I, I liked it mm-hmm. more than you did, Will. Uh, I, I know Barack Obama yeah. really liked it, so maybe we should reconsider it for uh, for mm-hmm. at least for our honorable mentions, but close for me. And uh, she also mentioned Burning, which she's in the UK. So Burning came out a little later for her, so she considered that for her 2019 films, even though in, in the States yeah. we saw it a little bit earlier in 2018. And uh, yeah. yeah, definitely a film that had a lot of sway last year on, on a couple of lists, if I recall. It made my list last year, so I remember that much. All right, well, those are all the outliers. Let's finish things out with the top 25 films according to the Cinemaholics. Uh, We went through the same point system as last year. The way it works is if somebody had it as, for example, their number one film, it got 10 points, number two, nine points to eight points, seven points, and so on. And we also factor in the placements. So if a film was on six lists, it got double that number as points. So for example, uh, Klaus was on six lists, so it got 12 points in addition to the points it got from being uh, on certain placements. So that's the way the point system works. Kind of a simple way to sort of balance out uh, not just how high things were on certain lists, but also how many times they showed up on people's lists. And starting at number 25 is Toy Story 4. 24 is Spider-Man Far From Home. 23 is Honey Boy. 22 is Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, which we did Mm. not really mention, although you mentioned it kind of tongue-in-cheek, Sam. Film that Will and I did not care for. Uh, But yeah, it made a few lists. Uh, Not super high for anybody. I think maybe uh, a little high for like one person. Uh, 21 is Pain and Glory, which uh, is in my top 20. I love that film. Uh, Number 20, we're in the top 20 now. The Last Black Man in San Francisco. I was really happy to see that even though it wasn't on a lot, a lot of lists, it did climb and get into the top 20. Uncut Gems, which, very surprised, it's this low. I thought it would have been like top yeah. 10, maybe, but yeah, not even top 15. Uh, Jojo Rabbit is at number 18. Midsummer is at number 17. Klaus is at number 16. Did not see that coming. I I really yeah. thought maybe, maybe one other person might have Klaus, but I was very happy to see that. Beautiful Day Good. in the Neighborhood is at number 15. I think that's the right spot. Ad Astra at number 14. Portrait. Damn right. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> Portrait of a Lady on Fire at number 13. I would imagine this would be even higher if this was later in the year and more people had a chance to see it. Uh, the Lighthouse at number 12. Booksmart at number 11. And now we're into our top 10. Uh, even yes. though this wasn't on any of our lists, it was on Will's honorable mentions. The Irishman. It was on a lot of lists. It was on eight lists. So it scored 63 points and two people had it as their number one film of the year. So Irishman's at number 10. Uh, Yeah, we've talked about it. Irishman, not a film I particularly love, but I do like and 
Uh, maybe I'll watch it again sometime down the road. And I've listened to a lot of other people talk about it. And I think people are very passionate about this movie. And I think that's very interesting. And people have said a lot of things that I didn't really catch when I watched the film. So yeah, um, same here. something to consider. At number nine is 1917. Even though I was the only one who had it on my list, uh, it scored a lot of points because it was on a bunch of lists. Little Women, Little Women at number eight. Uh, definitely happy to see this one climb a bit. Yeah, it was on a lot of lists, even though we didn't have it. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at number seven. Us at number six, which I didn't think would happen. I thought Us would be lucky to be in the top 10, uh, <laughs> but it was decisively in the top 10. Uh, Marriage Story at number five, which I was surprised by this one as well. I thought this would be uh, way higher, uh, yeah. but it's still pretty high. It's still top five. Uh, Avengers Endgame at number four. Very surprising. It was it was lower on the list for a while. And then we got some last minute lists that pushed this one up even further. The hmm. Farewell at number three. Another one I was not expecting, but this was on 13 lists. I thought maybe, maybe this will be top 15 because I feel like people have been forgetting about The Farewell because of when it came out. But nope, it is high, high, high on the list. And then we get yep. into our top two. Now our top two films of the year scored more points than our number one film of last year, which was Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And both of these films may- had more points than that. So a little bit more consensus this year. Number two, you probably guessed it, Knives Out. This scored 136 points. It was on 17 lists. A lot of people really loved Knives Out. And then number one, you probably guessed this one as well, scoring 194 points, showing up on 19 lists, which is more than half of the list submitted is Parasite. And not too surprising. Parasite is just such a such a cinch of a film. And those are our top 25 films. Are are you happy with this list, Sam? Do you feel like uh, we uh, the the Cinemaholics contributors nailed it for the most part, at least? I think they nailed it for the most part. Yeah, it's um, I was uh, I, I think I could have predicted Parasite like months ago. I just, it just has that feeling like, yeah, it's going to make a whole lot of number one lists. One thing I want to mention real fast is just for a little bit of context, uh, the top 25, the just the significance that that number has. It was out of 80 total films that were amalgamated from that's right. All yeah. of the lists combined. So a lot uh, of films nothing... were on multiple lists. We just never got a chance to talk about them. Yeah. Yeah, there are too many to count, which is is a sign of a very good year, which indeed this was. And I think Parasite is a very rightful gold medal possessor of that list. Yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, Will, just like last year, the number one Cinemaholics film wasn't even on your top 10. <laughs> Gotta honor that tradition. <laughs> but uh, that's, what, that's yeah. what we like about you. I think the highest one that is on your list is Marriage Story. Mm-hmm. Uh, your number one is the number five. And then also there's Us and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So you yeah. weren't shut out completely. Sure. But all right. Those were our favorite films of the year. And hope you all enjoyed this extra crazy long episode. Longest episode of Cinemaholics <laughs> ever. Yeah. Uh, yes. Hate to say it. <laughs> but hopefully that's for the better. Hope you all got a lot out of this. We are ending it now because uh, it's been long enough. Uh, here's to 2020, Sam and Will. I hope it's another great one. Uh, I know the tens did not be the case for years ending in zero. Sometimes it can be not the best, but uh, who knows? Uh, even though I think this year is going to be very tumultuous for box office in general, not a lot of films coming out this year that people are necessarily hyped for. But I hope that as we enter the streaming era in full, I think we're going to be experiencing a lot of cinematic changes. I think uh, the theater, theatrical system is going to get even more, is going to face even more changes and upset 
than even in this past year alone. Uh, one of the side effects might be that we're going to get uh, incredible films through streaming services. I think that is just the writing is on the wall for that. Uh, a lot of Netflix films in particular are looking like huge contenders for the films we're going to be talking a lot about. And as it happens, as depressing as it is, uh, I'm excited to get into this year with both of you. And uh, that's all I got to say, because <laughs> it is late <laughs> and it's time for us to yes. call it. So from the Internet, California, I am John Agroni. From the Internet, Pennsylvania, I'm Wash. And once more into the breach from the Internet, Colorado, I'm Sam Nolan. See you next time. Bye.